You are listening to Property.com, a podcast for academics, students, and anyone else interested in property law. I am Bram Akkermans, and I am a property scholar based at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. In this podcast, we look at all aspects of property from a primarily legal perspective, but also from social science and any other discipline when that is called for. In this very special but somewhat lengthy episode, I offer you the recordings of the Workshop Property Law of the Juskomune Research School's annual conference. It's a long episode that essentially offers uh, a keynote speech by Chef van Erp and then uh, a panel with myself, Bram Ackermans, uh, Jill Robbie from Glasgow and Elsie van der Seide from Stellenbosch University. And then a panel on um, COVID and, and COVID effects on property law. Um, with speakers Lorna Fox O'Mahony, um, Mark Rourke and John Lovett. Um, Lorna is at Essex, Mark at Baton Rouge and John at Loyola Law School um, in the US. Um, this was a very special um, uh, workshop where we tried to investigate the effects of the coronavirus or the COVID-19 pandemic on property law. And so we uh, discussed uh, several effects, such as technological aspects, which Chef took um, a fantastic care of, um, and but we also took some more um, literary uh, or um, uh, country perspectives, as well as shared our concerns on what to do and how to move forward after this. Um, I wish you a lot of joy in in listening to this. Uh, feel free to you know to to speed ahead and 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 look for those contributions that are most of interest to you. Welcome to our, our session. Um, it's divided into essentially into three parts. Um, we start with a keynote from Chef Van Erp, uh, who will soon be um, Emeritus Professor um, at Maastricht University. And then there are two panels and two panel discussions. And the first panel um, will be me and Elzebi um, and Jill, you know, the, the what we call the process gang. I'll say something more about that when we, when we get there. Um, we take a, 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 you know, a break for coffee. Uh, or tea or whatever it is that we that we need and then we close off with a with a panel um with amongst others um john lovett mark rourke um lorna fox will join um this will be very exciting and you know the theme that hopefully stitches it all together is crisis response COVID, and how we how we deal with this and 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 what's happening to our property law and how to move forward those are the, the i think the big questions and so um, by the end of the day, I'm also hoping, um, you know, by way of concluding remarks, also to see some of the, some of the joint uh, observations or some of the observations that we made that we we can bring together. All right. Without much further ado, I think it's time to go for our first, um, to go to the first part, and so we turn to Chef. I don't think I need to introduce much. Chef is the professor of civil law and European private law at Maastricht University and special visiting professor at the University of Trento. He's also a deputy justice in the Court of Appeals and amongst others, a founding member and former vice president of the European Law Institute. Um, in January, after a tremendous career, Chef will become emeritus professor. And Chef is going to talk about um, data, which is a specialty, of course, and in particular relating to to know, mobile devices that monitor our contact chef. The presentation I'm going to give you, um, I think it's the fourth time now that I'm giving this presentation, each time a little bit different. Um, I'll tell you why I repeat it. Um, first time I gave it for the graduate school in Tento, 
The Underline Tech Lab in Maastricht last Saturday at the annual conference of the China EU School of Law, and now for you. Um, and the reason is that I need input from various angles, from various perspectives. And this has to do with the work that I do next to all my ac academic work. Uh, within the European Law Institute, I chair and I'm co-reporter for two projects, advising the European institutions on rulemaking in the area of blockchain and smart contracts, that's the one, and access to digital assets, that's the other group. Um, of course, the two groups, the work that we do in those groups is connected, but it all circles around data. And how do you look at the legal aspects of data, the data economy? Um, the European Commission is extremely active at the moment. They recently published, I think five weeks ago, a package of proposals when you print them out, more than three, 400 pages. Uh, beginning of December, another package will follow, uh, again, probably two, 300 pages. And it is part of that whole process towards, towards lawmaking in the European Union that I'm quite active. And so the background of my talk has to do with, with that. And I'm really looking forward to presenting it to you and hearing from you what, what you think. Now I'm going to share my screen with you. And I'm sure that Bram made me co-host. He did. And there we go. All right. Now, um, I have quite a, a lot of slides, so some I will just pass over. In case you're interested, I can send you the uh, slides, no, no, no problem. Um, but some, um, though I will, what is it? I will just pass over quickly. Some will take more time because it's, it's a really complicated topic because it has to do with data, with ownership, a basic concept of property law, and with corona apps, which basically... Um, well, they concern all of all of us. Uh, you know, do you want an app on your phone that traces you, uh, but then you know, in the in interest of public health? Um, so let's see. Now, these are all the topics that I have to discuss with with you. Um, I'll say a few words on IT and the impact on private law. I'll explain briefly how the app works, at least how the, how it works in Europe, because there's quite some difference. Um, we will talk about stakeholders involved. When we talk about data ownership, what do we mean by ownership? That's already a problem by itself. What we're looking for is a balancing of interests, and I will defend that ownership when it comes to data has nothing to do with traditional ownership. It's about management and management rights. And um, you, when you collect data on people who have been in your vicinity, what you do is you manage those data on your phone and you are what I call the primary manager of those data, but there are also other managers. And how do, you, how do, how do these various, well, uh, persons, all managers, how does that relate to one another? What are, what are your rights? And is it really a right that we're talking about or a status? And aren't we seeing, we know that there's this famous article uh, from status to contract, well, in a way, what I now see is from property to status. So let's let's see. What, um, um, now, just briefly, the impact of IT on private law, and I have to do that to so that you are all aware of what is going on. Um, we all know about information available in oral or written form. Only recently in human history, 
it became available in digital format. We then collected that digital information in databases. Then the internet came, the databases could be connected. Then by connecting them, we could analyze them. So data science, data analysis. But that was just the beginning. Uh, since about 15 years, we have DLT, distributed ledger technology, making it possible that computers in a computer network all have the exact same copies of information. Based on that are blockchains, which makes it possible that the information is stored in such a way that it becomes a unique block that can be connected with what happens to the block, so connected with transactions, so, so you create a blockchain. And the most known, well-known blockchain is Bitcoin, but there are many, many other blockchains at the moment. And this is a development of about 15 years ago. Um, the way these blockchains work is mostly through smart contracts, self-executing computer programs, which make formation and performance into an automated process where human inter intervention is not only not, not only not necessary, but it's impossible. The computer runs itself. If you combine this with the Internet of Things, where we now have physical things which only function in combination with software, um, and then you must think of in the future, but already now in certain other areas, but in the future, particularly cars, you buy a car, but it will only run when you have the license to use the software that, for instance, starts the engine or keeps the engine running. So what we expect is that we will buy a car still, but you will get a license for five years to use the software. And after five years, you have to renew the license. If not, you have an interesting car, but you cannot do anything with it anymore. And this happens already in farming with certain types of tractors, so farming machinery. And so the Internet of Things, uh, which works through sensors. Um, now, recently, because temperatures in the Netherlands, climate change, are going up, uh, I bought an airco. No one ever in the Netherlands thought about buying an airco, but now uh, we've had a summer with 42 Celsius, which is incredibly high for us. Uh, that airco is connected to the internet, so it's connected to a server of the producer of the airco. Through that server, an app on my phone can also be connected. And so with the app on my phone, I can start my echo. But this means that because all the data traffic goes through the server of the pr pr producer, that the producer knows that I am starting my echo usually at 10 o'clock in the evening, that my favorite temperature is 21 Celsius, that it has to terminate at a particular, let's say, 4 o'clock in the morning. It's all data that is also available to the producer because the sensors which measure temperature, for instance, in my echo, make that information available to me, but through the server of the producer. The more data are available, the happier a data scientist is, and particularly when the data scientist uses advanced software that uh, is in fact artificially intelligent. Um, the, all these IT developments together create for private law a perfect storm in the sense that um, you know, what's the relevance of the law if everything is run by 
well, machinery, by software. In When you talk to computer programmers, they tell you that basically they create the, the law, they create the real environment, and that we lawyers are just troublemakers. We just make, make it difficult. Um, what we also see happening, and that's where I connect to how these Yuskumuna days began with the keynotes in the beginning, um, we see that the data economy is developing into a big data commons. It's data from various sources coming together, being mixed, being analyzed, being resold. It's it's a huge mass of data um, that creates the risk of lawlessness, but it also creates an opportunity to create more specific commons with a certain governance structure. And the European Union, the European Commission is working on that um, as it will create so-called data spaces. And one of those spaces is a health space. And these health spaces are characterized or will be characterized by um, data sharing. And the Commission is even thinking about compulsory data sharing. Now, let's have that in the back of our mind when we start thinking about corona apps, because they are about health and health data. Um, what does this mean for the use of corona apps? Um, now, just to give you an idea about the app itself, um, the idea to use an app in combating the virus fits completely with developments that we call e-health, electronic health. Like um, on my phone, I have an app that uh, makes it possible that you, you, you can take a picture, you upload it, and then uh, a computer system with the help of artificial intelligence checks whether that part of your skin uh, shows signs of skin cancer. And if so, the picture is sent to an actual person, a doctor, a specialist, who will then contact you and you know, make an appointment and so on. Now, that was a development already going on. And so when you have that in your mind, using a phone to find out whether you have been in contact with someone who is infected and do that with the help of an app is not really a very strange idea. Um, there has been quite a lot to do about, well, you know, how do these apps work? What about privacy? Well, in Europe, we basically use the apps built on the project by a joint effort Apple, Google, and we use the DP3T des design that's decentralized privacy-preserving proximity. It means that the apps are tracing apps, so they collect data, which makes it makes it make it makes it possible to find out backwards, so afterwards, with whom you have been in touch. They are not tracking apps, so they do not follow your life. They're tracking in China but they're tracing in the European Union. Um, what happens is that when you have Bluetooth on your phone, your phone connects with other phones in your vicinity in case you have been close enough for about 15 minutes and the phones will exchange the Bluetooth codes. So the Bluetooth codes of the people in your vicinity will be stored on your phone and that's it. Nothing happens. In case, however, you... Uh, are being diagnosed as positive for the virus, um, you will get a code from a national health authority that allows you to upload the data to a central government server. 
Now, from that moment, the data are on your phone, but copied onto a central server. So there are already two copies of the data. And so it's not just only you having access, it's also the government having access. The data on the uh, central computer are checked by everyone who has a coronavirus app on his or her phone once a day. And so let's say I'm infected. Um, the codes of everyone with whom I've been in close contact have been uploaded. Well, when your app then checks with the central government com computer, it will download the codes of people on your phone as well with whom I have been in close contact and tell you, we warn you, you have been in close contact with someone who is infected, go to a doctor, have yourself tested. The whole process is anonymous. So you will never know that you're being warned because for instance, I was the person who was too close to you and I'm now infected. So it, it's from a privacy viewpoint, the system is completely safe. And it is so safe that I recently, uh, one of my colleagues, former colleagues at the European Law Institute, Christiane Wendorst, had argue in a talk about these coronavirus apps from the perspective of privacy, that privacy protection basically has gone here so far that the general interest, public health, probably moved away too much. But that's another debate. But the data that we can collect can be anonymous, they can be pseudonymous, or you can know about whom the data are. Um, the starting point is that all the data that we are talking about are anonymous. The difficulty, however, is that uh, although data um, are anonymous, that when you combine them with other data, other data sets, um, you can, through reverse engineering, more and more find out to whom the data belong so it might be that the data are anonymous in one set, but by combining them with other sets, they still can be traced back to a person. And that is a growing problem. And I'm involved in a project proposal in Maastricht on data used by our uh, academic hospital, uh, how to uh, develop software that makes it impossible through reverse engineering to trace back from whom particularly health data came. Then the, the stakeholders, um, because when we have a look at um, the various uh, uh, people involved in, in these data coronavirus apps, um, stakeholders is not just you, but I already explained that the data uh, are uploaded to a central government computer. So the government is a stakeholder, but of course the data are given to a national health authority. Um, they might be used by a hospital, by doctors. Um, they're, they're used for scientific research, and they're also used for commercial research. So when we look at the data available, we have several stakeholders with very diverging interests, some an interest from, let's say, public health, others a more commercial interest, and you, the person with whom it all began, a personal interest, a privacy-protected interest. Now, when we look at this as, let's say, the field to start with, so the data we're talking about, an e-health an e app, 
um, the various stakeholders involved, let's now ask and face the question, to whom belong the data? Who controls these data? Who controls the data flow? Um, and there's a question property lawyers traditionally would call an ownership question. But what do, you, what do we mean by ownership? Now, any comparative lawyer can tell you that the word ownership is as open and vague as possible. Um, in English, ownership hardly has any meaning. Uh, you can be the owner of a management process in English. Um, but when you look at ownership from a more comparative, let's say a more substantial viewpoint, um, ownership in the civil law uh, is very different in France compared to what ownership means in under German law. In Germany, ownership means you own a, specific, a particular specific physical object. So you cannot own anything that is not physical. In France, the, the starting point is you can own anything that has economic value. And that could also be something which is non-physical. So even within the civil law, there is quite some debate about what ownership is. If I look at the common law, it's even more diverse. Uh, you know, I have, we, we have to distinguish land law, personal property law, and so on. So what do we mean by ownership? So that by itself already is something we must clarify before we start answering the question, who owns data? What do we mean by ownership? And then it might even depend upon the language we speak. So whether you ask yourself the question in English or French or in German. Um, so English is a bit of a complicated language here because of its open-ended terminology. Uh, we will come across terms like ownership, like stewardship, user, property, and so on. Um, and we have all these interests to look at and which interests should have priority. So what I argue is that uh, we're not so much talking about traditional ownership. So this is not ownership in the sense of owning a car or owning a monetary claim. Uh, what we're talking about is a status. It's, well, what can you do with your data? What, what can you do with the data on your phone? Um, and what, what you can do is access. So do you know which data are on your phone? Do you control them? Can you take them with you, portability? Can you modify them? Can you delete them? That is what we are talking about when we talk about data ownership. And yes, access is a part of traditional ownership because you, could, you, you say, well, when you own land, you have access to the land. Um, so it's not completely different. But we should bear in mind that the object data is very, very different in nature than any physical object. Now, here we can distinguish various types of management. A primary manager, who you might call a data owner, is the person who creates the damages. We can have a secondary manager, a data steward, that could be the government, using the data in the public interest, public health. And I'll come back to the dominium eminence part. And we have tertiary managers. And in fact, the European Commission is thinking along these lines. Um, they think in terms of when it comes to data ownership, that we in Europe should distinguish a data owner, a data steward, who's not really the owner, but has rights 
close to being a data owner and a data user. Um, another point is, well, what data are we talking about, right? We can, we can qualify, let's say, the status, the right, but in property law, we need to, we need to be specific. Which data are we talking about? Uh, well, in the case of data on a phone, it's clear, but data uh, in a central government computer, which is mixed with other data, which is then mixed with another data set for analysis, how do you look at co-generated data? Who, who then has management rights concerning these co-generated data? It's quite, quite a separate problem. Um, what makes it even more complicated is that in the past year or so, more and more states have claimed sovereignty over data. So, so the European Union recently, in a statement by a commissioner, has said that all data generated or stored on European soil fall under the sovereignty of the European Union. Uh, in Quebec, a minister for economic affairs has said that all data collected by Quebec health authorities are free to be sold by the Quebec government to the pharmaceutical industry. And Australia has even gone further uh, in its statute on coronavirus apps. It has a section 94ZC saying that Australia is a federal state, so and the federation is called the Commonwealth, that the data in a COVID app is the property of the Commonwealth. And um, uh, even uh, after it has been used by others, um, it, it remains the property of the Commonwealth, even disclosed to or used by any other person or body. Um, and so Australia is, this is not China, right? This is not a country claiming that because it has a Marxist economy, um, the general resources belong to the state. This is, this is Australia. And so what I argue is that when it comes to entitlement, ownership of data, we should look at who is involved as a stakeholder, um, how close are you involved, are you involved in creating the data, are they personal, and so the rights that you have as data managers among yourselves depend upon the moment in time that you analyze this. It's dynamically evolving. As long as the data are on your phone, it's you. The moment you upload them to a, to a government computer, it's you and the government. The moment they go to a public health authority, you already have three. The moment they go to a hospital, you have four. The difficulty then is when, what happens when they get co-generated? Who, who, who has then which rights? Um, the common law is far more able to deal with this than the civil law. A civil lawyer says, traditionally, ownership is the most complete right over an object forever, and there can only be one owner. Um, the common law makes a far more, well, differentiated approach, or takes a far more differentiated approach here. And this is the moment that my civil law colleagues, when I give talks like this, look at me like, no, no, you're not saying that the, the common law is better than the, the civil law, right? I said, well, I'm not saying it's better, but it's better equipped. And then I say, and, you know, uh, look at French law. There is a leading case already from the 1830s from the French Supreme Court saying that the definition of ownership in the French civil code 
is not the exclusive type of ownership known by French law. In that decision, old feudal rights of the Duchy of Normandy, former Duchy of Normandy, basically had survived the French Revolution. And so for a French lawyer, the definition of ownership in the French Civil Code is a type of ownership next to possible other types. And in fact, even in countries like Germany, we see an awareness that perhaps civil law ownership might have to be restricted somehow because many civil law jurisdictions have trust-like institutions. How do you manage all of this? Well, I think in part the answer has to come from software development itself. In IP law, um, we have digital rights management. So when you borrow an ebook, uh, after two weeks, the ebook can be no longer accessible on your computer. And so in that way, you can through software manage the use access of data. And I think in part, the solution will not be legal, but will also be software based. That is essentially what I wanted to argue. Um, data ownership is, in my view, not traditional ownership, it's management. Um, it creates more status than rights. Um, a status for each stakeholder concerned. Uh, what your status then implies depends upon the moment in time that you an analyze the situation. And um, I think definitely when it comes to health apps, the primary manager who should be given priority over other interests is definitely the person, well, basically who creates the data about whom the data are. Um, and that's exactly the European approach. So this is very fast, Brom. I did my best in a little bit more, I think, than 20, 20 minutes to give an overview. But I still, although I was really fast, I hope I was clear. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for doing this. Uh, dear colleagues, I said at the beginning, we, we have some time. Uh, so um, I'm assuming perhaps there is someone who has a question for Chef. Can I, can I challenge you a bit? It cannot be that you all agree with me. There you go. Professor Rourke. <laughs> Professor Rourke. <laughs> So I, I, I thought this was really interesting. And and one of the things I kept thinking about when you were talking about Australia and sort of the distinctions between what falls into ownership, what falls into management of resources is the distinctions that we make around public things, common things, and private things in the civil law, um, at least in Louisiana, uh, that, that doesn't arise in, in common law states like Australia. But, but it seems to me like in common law states, you still have this category of things that fall outside of the boundaries of property that we've all agreed is a, as a kind of a general consensus that we're not going to make these things uh, subject to markets or subject to ownership. Um, and so like in the U S I'm thinking about there, there's a classic case um, called the regents of California case, which dealt with the fact that, you know, your, your bodily organs, you don't have a property right in your bodily organs that could allow you to exclude uh, medical science from sort of gaining from those things. Right. But I kind of wonder, and I want to push back a little bit that I, I think like that division of things of common things and private things in the civil law performs that function, but maybe just in a bit more structured way. And maybe the civil law struggles a little bit more in adapting for how the things come into those categories that we don't treat as marketable. Um, but 
that when we apply those concepts or we apply those principles that we typically get to the same space. And, and I think like, you know, I, I kept thinking about the analogy of internet data and highways being like roads in the, in the public sphere and, and thinking about how it seems to me that countries around the world are making this determination that, public health data that affects all of us can't be excluded as we shape our broader public policy for how we interact with it. And if we allow for individuals or um, actors to, to make them subject to markets then, or only subject to markets without some intervention by the state, then we, we, um, we interfere with our, the basic, way that we think about how property and the public interact. Um, so I don't think I necessarily disagree with you, but I, I wanted to push back on the civil law, common law mm-hmm. distinction just a bit, because I, I do think that civil law because of its structure struggles a little bit more, but ultimately generally probably gets to the same space. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Well, when it comes to uh, the uh, regions case um, in many countries that is solved by legislation on bio bio banks, and it's really interesting to see that that legislation goes really far sometimes, that states simply say all data in a biobank is publicly owned. Um, and that surprised me when I studied that. Um, another point is that um, in the UK, there was a judicial task force about the nature of digital assets. That task force within six months wrote its report. Um, and that report has already been followed by an English judge granting an injunction, a proprietary injunction against bitcoins, uh, so uh, making it possible to seize bit- bitcoins. And it has already also been, fi- been uh, followed in a leading case by the New Zealand Supreme Court. Um, so uh, what I see in the common law world, the English common law world, there is a very quick acceptance now of data as being basically property. Um, And uh, the chair of the judicial task force was in a panel that I organized for the European Law Institute. And he said to me, what you should do as chair of your own European working group is be be, uh, to be brutally pragmatic and simply ignore academic debate and move on. Uh, because economic reality is over, over, overtaking academic debate. And if you're not fast in, enough, the digital reality will overtake the legal reality. So you must act. Um, I felt that was quite a statement. Um, but at the same time, we do have to move quickly. If I see what is happening at a digital level, um, you know, in both working groups that I chair are supported by uh, software people to keep us updated about what is, what is going on. Um, and, um, uh, uh, in, and I must say, in that respect, um, the common law shows really more flexibility than the civil law. Um, in the civil law, you can build in flex- flexibility, definitely. Um, you know, under Dutch law, we will follow the German approach. You can only own physical things, but in Dutch law, we also have the concept of entitlement. Um, entitlement to what what we call a patrimonial right. Um, so basically, you could solve it along those lines, but it needs some creative thinking. Um, so, Mark, I agree. 
uh, but I do think that the, the civil law still has a road to travel. John Lovett. Yes, great talk. Um, just one other player you might want to put into your matrix for <clears throat> interests. I think employers uh, are a very important player in the United States in Corona apps. I have a Corona app that I uh, have to uh, fill out every day. That was given to me by the university. It was created by another university. And so uh, I've co-created this with my employer, and they probably can share it with lots of other people. So employment law uh, and it's all its coercive uh, potential also enters into the fact, into, into the forum. That's all. I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Thank you, John. Um, that's an aspect that does not play a role in Europe. Um, but it is, to be honest, it, it worries me that it's being used in, in that, that way as a coercive, basically, tool, right? Because this is how I understand you. Right, right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and if I don't do this, I, my employer could keep me away from class, keep me away from my office. Perhaps there could be other employment consequences. Um, I'll, I'll definitely look into that as well. Thank you. All right, then. Agustina has a short question, I think. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chef. Uh, you gave us a unique overview crossing continents and areas of law. And could you tell us in maybe one line which part of the world you think is more avant-garde in this area that you're looking at? Could you summarize it in one line? Great, Thank you. Great question, Augustine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a good, good question. Um, when I look at the plans that the European Commission has, so published, and I know a little bit about what is not yet published, to be honest, I think the European Union uh, is doing quite a good job here. To give you an answer in one line. Thank you, Chef. Once more, um, we applaud you. Uh, and we hope you you're staying around also at Juskomune for a while, huh? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm very happy you were you're you're able and willing to give the keynote. Thank you, Chef. Dear old, let's let's move on. Um, you know, let's move on to our second part and to our first panel, um, which includes um, Jill Robbery from Glasgow, Elsa van der Seide from Stellenbosch, um, and myself. Uh, and I think if I remember correctly, Jill and Elsa, we agreed that I would start. Um, because I have, as, as per usual, the most overarching um, um, thing to say. So what I will do immediately is diving in. What I wanted to do, everyone, is to talk a little bit about, um, so where are we at now um, with our property law and what, in my view, the, the corona crisis or COVID crisis, I'm going to use them um, interchangeably, um, what the, the, the questions that, that, that I ask myself. And I do this, and as usual, I, I feel like the old duck out here. Um, you know, it's so it won't be a technical legal talk, and very much in contrast of of the of the wonderful thing that Chef just did, and of the wonderful things that will follow me. This is going to be much more abstract and and and, and conceptual in nature. But they are the questions I'm I'm asking myself at the moment. And so what I've been doing, and what the what the what the great, I mean, there are many bad things to the. Um, uh, a, a corona situation at the moment but a very good thing for me is i have never been able to read more than in the you know past couple of months um and so i i i've read many books and so um i want to talk about the books that i've read and and the insights um that these these books have given me and um so perhaps this is more of a series of book reviews than anything else uh, but the research question i'm asking myself is how do we come out of the covid crisis without returning back 
to the to our old status quo. And it's something we've also been discussing in the in the um, it's something we've been discussing in the in the spring as well. Um, and it's really something that that well, I don't have the answer, but I think there are lessons. And so these are the lessons I think um, that I have learned. And it starts with um, the work of Thomas Piketty. And in particular, the work on, on capital in the 21st century. So this is a book from 2014 already. I don't need to explain, I hope, um, um, what's in there. Um, but I think what we are learning from that, or what I'm learning from that, is how what what he calls, as an, as an economist, calls capital um, very much aligns with what we would call property. Um, and that he shows that how in the um, throughout time, and in particular in the last 200 years, um, inequality has arisen and that there's this one percent of the population that holds the vast majority of property then and also of capital um and there are loads of people who do not i think don't i don't think that's a new insight but i think this is where my 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 story and my search begins and he follows this up with a second book that i've been reading or at least trying to read um as some of you know it took me a couple of months to 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 finish it um where he connects this whole economic history um, research that he did in capital in the 21st century to political ideology and i thought i think this is where it becomes really interesting also for us property lawyers so how is it possible that these um how is it possible that that inequality has in fact arisen um, he writes a lot about the french revolution and you know I, I i've been teaching the french revolution um for my whole career um but the way in which piketty describes what the french revolution has not done is certainly not something that I think we in property law, particularly not us European civil law property lawyers, pay a lot of attention to. And so Piketty shows how the promises of the French Revolution of equality and property for all really did not work out. And how, for example, voting rights remained connected to landholding and large landholding. So you had to pay taxes to a, a certain level. Also, after the French, way after the French Revolution, and I think part of the argument he makes, even though he's not a property lawyer, he's showing us what the role of property law has been. And so other lawyers are picking this up. And, and this is where I read Katarina Pistor's The Code of Capital, um, where Pistor basically argues that capital is very interesting for, eco- for, econo- uh, for economists, but it's worthless without the law. And so the argument that she puts forward, which I don't think is very new, but she, she presents it in a very compelling way, is that it's the law that makes that gives capital its value and that ensures its tradability. And so that, in my thinking, brings us to this idea, okay, so then um, if we then have this right of ownership in a non-necessarily um, specific legal system, meaning then to say, we've always been saying in the civil law, this is an absolute right. And I'm wondering now, whether if saying that ownership is an absolute right is actually a political, more of a political expression than anything else, because it's really not. And the more that I dive in into restrictions of ownership, the more we find out that ownership is really not absolute at all. And there's loads of restrictions. There are um, restrictions from public law, there are restrictions from private law. And so in reality, I guess, ownership means power, power over others or status, or it means a right of self-determination, or it means entitlement to land. 
And here I was, I, I, I got stuck for a bit. And then I read this book by Nick Hayes on the book. It's called The Book of Trespass, which I can absolutely recommend. Nick Hayes is an artist rather than a lawyer. But he writes and he illustrates. This is an example of one of the illustrations he makes for his chapters. And he writes about once more, but from his point of view, how we've moved through in, in history from you know from commons and the right to roam and where everyone was free to go to exclusivity and how landowners have enclosed their land and slowly have taken um, things that were common before into um, exclusivity and particularly this is this applies to the to England in particular and the rights to hunt um, and so how landowners have excluded their land in order to hunt to be able to hunt deer um, which I think is a very interesting argument to make. And similar arguments are made by others as well. So this is Hayes makes this argument for for um, the UK in particular, but England um, uh, 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 even more specifically. Um, but this book of Howard Mansfield, I have I have Jill Robbie to thank for this, um, pointing this out for me. But it's really uh, Mansfield, who's a journalist, writes the, the he writes a similar story, but then for the US. And here I think things get really um, here things get really really interesting. Piketty shows us how we as Europeans have exported our legal system throughout the world. And that in the exportation of our legal system throughout the world, um, we have done good. I mean, there's loads of things that have happened and economic development that has happened. But there's a dark side to that that really has not surfaced much and that we haven't seen much. And so Mansfield basically talks about the what, what he calls the fluidity of property rights. And I think that's a very interesting one. And he says, this is all very nice, this European ownership that these settlers brought with them. Um, but he argues how in the US, the right of property, and particularly the right of ownership, is not so absolute as, it's, as he thinks it is in Europe. I don't think it is in Europe. And he writes about how, the, for economic reasons, um, for example, highway constructions, um, or other economic development, the rights, you know, ownership can be, you can have it, but it can also be easily taken away. And there I think, you know, that raises us, it brings me back to the question, okay, so what is it then that we are talking about? What What is our system of property law, really? Do we not, as property lawyers, is a question I'm asking myself, do we not, as property lawyers, are we not creating, a, um, you know, our own reality, in which we describe how our rights are perhaps absolute or almost absolute and how our system of property law works very much as a system. Um, and I think other books, um, more legal, argue this as well. There's this wonderful work by Matei and Quarta uh, called The Turning Point of Private Law. Um, that Matei, who is of course a, a, a commons scholar, very much argues the return to the commons. And Marjorie Kelly and in, in other um, um, fields and other talks, I have spoken about her already. She talks about moving from extractive ownership, so where you use your right of ownership to take wealth from the land, much more to what, what she calls regenerative ownership. And the idea that you can use your right of ownership in different ways. We can construct our right of ownership in different ways. And we can look at this from a regen regenerative point of view, much more than from an extractive point of view. And that, I think, is the... Well, that's the research question that I'm, I'm, I'm posing to you and it's the, uh, part of the answer that I'm, I'm presenting to you in a sense of... So how... Should we go back to extractive 
ownership and extractive property law or should we try with sustainability in the back of our minds to move forward and to say, okay, so after COVID, um, should we now, um, should we do this differently? Um, so how do we, just to mention a couple of more books um, that I studied on this. So the first one is the, is the this is very famous, is the World Report. It's a report of the World Commission on Environmental on the environment and development it's called the Brundtland report eh? so this is this defines sustainable development for us how do we get to such regenerative property law how do we get I think and here we look at the economic foundation how do we get to post-growth economics and what can be which is very much the, the project that I'm trying to focus on um, in the next year what can be the role of future generations and so if we look at ownership, not so much, and property law, not so much as only giving powers or exclusivity to the person holding it, but also saying, okay, yeah, but the person who holds property should not only do that for himself, but also for those that come after him or her. And that, I think, connects very much, of course, to the work that Greg Alexander is doing in property and human flourishing. And it's something I've, I've, I've spoken about um, at length already. Um, and I think the interesting thing there, and, and the criticism on that is, is it, it's a wonderfully progressive theory, but is it not too much human-centered if we're looking at regener- regenerative property law? And so there are others like Visa Kurki who, you know, who, who try to find, who try to look at, okay, so what else can we include in our legal system? This is also um, something that was this morning in a, in, a, in a different workshop, of course, part of the, of the, of the debate. What if we would say, let's not phrase and formulate and, 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 and give shape to our property law as on the basis of human flourishing, but why not do it on the basis of planetary flourishing? I don't know if that's the answer yet. This is the phase where I'm at. Um, and of course, that brings us back immediately into the questions of obligations of ownership. And that's not a new question. And I'm just mentioning, you know, I, 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 I'm just, um, I say it, mentioning two um, I also see that Augustine is here. You know, that's that's we, Augustine and I have talked long for about the 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 the, uh, 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 the origins of social obligations in, in property. And so, for you specifically, Augustine, I put degree on there. Um, but yeah, for sure. What if we would look at our system of property law um, much more as an ecosystem, and so look at property as as a way for us to not only extract from our surroundings, but rather to you know, live in, 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 and, and work in harmony with that. And so I think Matei and, and Capra give a very interesting view on that. And so final point, because I'm running out of time, the question I then ask ourselves, okay, this is very interesting to do, but then what guides us? So how should we do this? What kind of direction? What do we use to give us direction in that respect? And there... I read this book by Manfred Steger on what's called the global imaginary or on the idea of imaginary. The imaginary is a social, a a concept from um, social sciences. Um, Political scientists make use of it, but it's actually a sociological concept in its, in its, uh, in its origin. It's the overarching idea that we use to phrase um, and to form our society. 
And I like this very much. I think we need to do more research as property lawyers in the, uh, these other sciences to see um, you know, if we can find things that can help us steer this and help us guide this. And so finally, I read one book um, by Eric Holthaus um, on, on what this would look like. And so Holthaus present, pre presents us a view um, on what we would have to do in the next 30 years. Um, basically to ensure planetary flourishing. And so he writes about what we would have to give up, but especially what we would get out of that. And so planetary flourishing theory might be a very interesting idea. What we could do is perhaps adapt the social thesis that Alexander uses. And Alexander uses as the basis of the human flourishing theory. He says, huh, for, for, in order for me to be a certain kind of person, a free person with the basic capabilities, and there we go, to help Everything in blue I added to help ensure planetary flourishing. I must be in, belong to, and support a kind of global society, I would say. My criticism on Alexander is very much that he, he I think he keeps his communities too small. Um, and that he doesn't look at the, at, at, at the global community um, sufficiently. A society that supports a certain kind of, and there I would add, social imaginary, including political, social, and moral culture. And that maintains a de decent background material structure, etc. And so with that, um, perhaps, and that's my thinking for the moment, in a little bit over 10 minutes, perhaps this is something that we can use to help, to help us to reconstruct or to rebuild our post-COVID society, I, I wrote, but perhaps I should have written our post-COVID property law. I'm going to leave it at that. This is part of the you know, already process uh, uh, initiatives that I already mentioned it's not only me, it's, thank goodness it's also Jill and Elzebi that are, are joining me although everything I just said is only me uh, so everything, I, uh, any mistake or anything stupid I said is also only me, thanks for that Thank you Bram um, uh, I don't think you said anything stupid <laughs> It was fast even for my, even for my purpose it was fast um, Okay so um, to pick up uh, this theme of property in a time of crisis, then I I want to continue um, a theme that I started in March. So, in considering property law in the time of crisis, I think it's it's obvious to turn our attention towards the ongoing Corona uh, virus pandemic. Not only because, for better of war or worse, it's the crisis which is currently getting the most attention around the world, but I think as well because there have been so many temporary property law amendments which have been implemented in response to the pandemic. Um, so what feels like a lifetime ago, um, I gave a presentation to the PropertyCon discussion group in March um, about three different marginalised groups in Scotland in a joint session with um, Professor John Lovett and how they could be affected by the current corona crisis. So my aim, the framework that I was thinking of is to consider the people in the margins during the time of corona. And in this presentation today, I want to go back and revisit the position of these groups and consider what measures have been implemented to protect them and whether these measures will be continued after this immediate crisis has passed. 
So the, the groups I considered in March were homeless people, gypsy and traveler communities in Scotland, and then um, tenants, so private tenants. So the first group of people I want to think about revisit are homeless people. So those without property, rough sleepers who are often um, sleeping on the streets. Of course, in the context of Corona, the need for a home, the place to shelter, a place to self-isolate or just undertake basic hygiene measures has never been more important. And homeless people were uniquely hit by the crisis. As an initial response, the Scottish government, local authorities and charities worked very hard and very quickly to try and get people off of the streets and into emergency accommodation, sometimes using disused or empty uh, hotels and B&Bs that were, were vacant because of the crisis itself. So as a result, the numbers of people rough sleeping in Scotland decreased significantly. The question is, though, what happens now? So there's been an increase in the number of people in temporary accommodation, but this is not the same as ensuring that people do not return to sleeping rough as soon as the immediate emergency is over. This has to also recognise that some of the people currently being housed have complex needs and family situations that may have become exacerbated by the crisis. Things like um, increased relationship breakdowns, increased uh, increased levels of domestic violence, and a decrease in the quality of, of mental health. In addition to these complex needs, um, there are also the consequences of the economic downturn, which is a result of the pandemic. So this, again, will have a knock-on effect on those who are most vulnerable. It's not just about having a place to stay inside, but for example, homeless people often rely on the charity of others for their food and their livelihoods. And with our streets becoming empty in recurring waves of lockdowns, shops shutting down and employment rising, um, this threatens the ability of people to obtain the charity that often feeds them. So before the coronavirus crisis, there was actually work going on in Scotland to tackle homelessness. Um, but due to the crisis in June 2020, the housing, housing Minister, Kevin Stewart, reconvened the Homelessness and Rough Sleeping Action Group in order to consider homelessness in the context of the pandemic. And this group has recently published a report on future action, but it's clear when reviewing that report so much comprehensive action will be required and that will in, in require significant resources for implementation this is should be in this seen in the light um of a recent report for example by the the scottish uh, housing regulator that prior to the pandemic glasgow city council breached its duty to provide secure accommodation and almost one in three people who were making a homelessness application were turned away. So it, it remains to be seen, I think, now then if the resources which have been made available during the pandemic will continue to be made available and lead to a broader change in homelessness provision in, in Scotland. So that was what one group of one group of people. The second group is um, gypsy or traveller communities in Scotland. 
this is another particularly marginalised group and our population of this group is around um, 15 to 20,000 people. The Scottish Government currently has the working group which is aimed at improving the lives of these communities, including the issue of housing. Such communities might live on traveller sites, which are authorised or not, or at the roadside. And these groups that have additional concerns, again, connected with their lack of a home in the, in the traditional conventional sense. Um, if they are on a traveller site, it might be possible they're in close proximity to many other people. There may be uh, communal toilets, communal showers, which are hotspots for transmission of the virus. There may not be sufficient space to store supplies if somebody needs to self-isolate or if one of the community becomes ill. So if a person is or family is living on an unauthorised site, they can be also particularly vulnerable because there might be a fear that they would be evicted from this new location by the local authority or by a private landowner. And these sites often don't have access to basic water and sanitation services no access to fuel or heating and might not be suitable for somebody to self-isolate. Just um, looking at these kind of conditions, there's, there's things that we take for granted, um, having access to running water, for example, and some of the gypsy or traveller communities would use things like leisure centres, which again are closed because of the pandemic. So these kind of usual places of managing hygiene are now not available. So as a result of these risks, in June 2020, the Scottish Government provided a framework for local decision-making for Gypsy or Traveller um, support. And this recognised that these communities face additional risks in relation to virus control, but also that they're more likely to have things like pre-existing health conditions be at the risk of poverty and food insecurity. So this decision-making framework encourages the stability of settling at the moment, minimising evictions and help um, providing gypsy or traveller communities with sanitation services for unauthorised encampments. So this includes toilets or, or washing facilities, safe disposal of waste. It's also included in these guidelines that no one should be asked to leave a site if they fall ill with COVID symptoms and they should be supported to access the test and protect services. This again raises a question, what happens to this group following the, um, um, the end of the immediate crisis? This additional support and protection is to be welcomed now, but... What, where, how do we maintain this momentum in the context of tightening budgets, which might be the biggest challenge for the future? The final group I want to discuss are tenants of residential pro properties and the changes in relation to this in Scotland. Um, many people will, will have already lost their jobs or will lose their jobs in the coming weeks or months. There's been a vast number of uh, people who have signed up for universal credit, our social security payment system in the UK in the past couple of months. It's likely that people will start to be fall behind on their rent as well as other outgoings like electricity and gas bills. Those who have a home through renting it may lose it. So the Scottish Government has therefore passed legislation, the Coronavirus Scotland Act 2020, 
to temporarily extend the notice period for most private sector evictions to six months. And there's a lesser extension for three months for certain tenant contact conduct grounds related to antisocial behaviour or criminal behaviour or where the landlord or their family member needs to move into the property. There's also a temporary change for private sector repossession cases to be considered on a discretionary basis. So the tribunal um, that considers evictions has to consider whether it's reasonable to grant the eviction order. And this allows the tribunal to take into account individual circumstances of the tenant when determining um, an eviction. This is a change from the existing law which had a mixture of mandatory grounds that if you came within those grounds, the tribunal had to grant the eviction order, um, such as the tenant, uh, sorry, the landlord intends to sell, um, and discretionary grounds, such as when the tenant is in breach of the tenancy. So this means that for the period that the legislation is in force, that a tenant who's in rent arrears for three months should have a six-month period before the landlord can raise eviction proceedings and the, the, the tribunal will still have to consider whether it's reasonable to grant the eviction order. Again, these changes go some way to protecting tenants against eviction and give them security at this particular time. Further problems will rise, though, when these temporary changes are lifted and people may be in arrears of rents for many months at that stage. So these measures are due to expire on the 31st of March 2021. I think that we're beginning to all grasp, in contrast to where we were in March, that Corona is definitely going to change, has already changed and is going to change the way our world functions. Businesses are going to go bust. Economies are going to change. People will remain jobless. Even if by March, with some implementation of a vaccine, economies uh, might begin to come back to life, but this does not mean that there won't be significant dispossession of tenants, which takes place in the future. So when I considered these groups in my presentation in March, I felt that we were just beginning to try and identify those who were facing exceptional risks due to the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of work, resources, temporary changes in law and policy have been made to give attention to the people who were particularly vulnerable and marginalised at that time. I think that that was the sprint. But these groups have always been facing multiple challenges. And it's just that these challenges have been made more visible in the context of coronavirus. So how we continue the momentum and of protection and recognition of these challenges and implement the changes to our property system to respond to these vulnerabilities, I think will be the marathon that we will be running for many years to come. And um, the particular context that I think that we are facing in, in that light is also how we cope with the priority, priorities of public sector spending in the light of the economic downturn that, that, that we're facing around the world. So thank, thank you very much, Bram, for giving me a chance to update my consideration of these groups. Thank you so much, Jill. Um, I propose we, we move to Elzebi and then we have some, some discussions, okay? Um, so, Elzebi. Hi, everyone. Thanks, uh, Bram, and 
everyone for organizing this chance for us to get together and talk a little bit now that we're a few months into the pandemic about how our research has been affected by it and uh, some research topics that we think are in need of more urgent uh, attention, etc. So it's a really um, yeah, an honor and a pleasure to be here to discuss. I'm going to keep it very brief in the hope that there will be some time to discuss. And I'm always so happy to see how my work just links with whatever's going through Brown and Jill's minds. <laughs> Um, because I think that you'll see that there are actually quite a lot of points to pick up on. Um, and I think the South African perspective is just to give context that we were already in crisis when this crisis started. So I think I come from the perspective of doing research in a, in a jurisdiction that was already in crisis and now is facing additional challenges. And I think it, it links very expressly to what Joel was saying about um, a lot of the challenges we've seen was already present. A lot of the marginalized groups were already marginalized. They were already facing a lot of challenges. But I think what Corona has brought into the picture for us is to see how that relates to other people, to society, and to, in the global context, how we are affected by the existence of inequality and all these other challenges. So, all right, just to introduce uh, a project we're working on, the South African Research Chair in Property Law, which is affiliated with Stellenbosch University and is funded by the South African government. Um, in sort of February, March, when we realized that this uh, was going to have such a tremendous impact um, on society, we wanted to have a, a project dedicated to looking at how property law fits into it. Uh, and the, the sort of structure of the project is that we are in the process of editing a collection of essays, which uh, reflects input from a variety of jurisdictions and on a variety of topics. That just is uh, introducing some of the topics we'll talk about today. And then the project is committed to uh, engaging with popular media to make sure that reliable and well-researched information is distributed and disseminated to the public on all these various aspects of how property law fits in with dealing with a crisis and responding to a crisis like this. Um, and then, of course, we're involved in providing input and commentary on uh, policy and uh, also on proposed legislation. And all of this will hopefully be compiled into a detailed research report at the end of next year. So, um, all right, so I'm going to just run through uh, some of the topics that came up. Um, clearly, the housing thing was, you know, immediately at the, you know, at the center of everyone's mind when, when you know, the sort of essence of, the, of almost every government's reaction was, you know, shelter in place. But that assumes that people have a shelter and that that shelter is of adequate standard to you know, to bunker down in, in a sense. And that's a huge assumption where a large part of the South African population, at least, you know, either doesn't have any shelter or their shelter is of a very uh, um, troublesome standard um, for having to remain locked down in that space. And I think the uh, impetus really for focusing on, well, on both the home, but much wider than that, is actually linked to an article that Professor John Lovett wrote after Hurricane Katrina, where in the very first or maybe second paragraph of the article, um, John said that, you know, did, did this change how, um, I should quote from him, he said it much better than I could, I, I'll, sorry, John, not to embarrass you, but he said, did Hurricane Katrina change the way people think about fundamental property relationships? And he went on to explain that first people looked at political and social and economic lessons that you could learn from this disaster. And actually very few people engaged with, you know, how will this change the national and then, you know, in our case now, even global discussion concerning property. 
And so the South African research chair really felt like we didn't want property to lag behind in the conversation. We wanted to bring that aspect into the conversation right away because we could see just from this idea of sheltering in place that property law would be central to to the response to, to COVID. And then once we started talking with people and engaging with stakeholders, we realized that the scope is so much wider than what we could have even anticipated. So we started with this idea of the home. I'm not going to go into this. I think Jill did such a good job of explaining uh, some of the intricacies. I mean, the context is slightly different, of course, between South Africa and Scotland, but just drawing your attention to some of the intricacies of what does it mean to relocate homeless people into a shelter for a temporary time? And then do you just dump them back on the street street once you change the, um, you know, the level of security? Um, because, you know, many of those challenges for the, for the person remains the same, except that they now are no longer a threat to public health. So there's a really, you know, complicated balancing that's taking place on all these different um, on different levels. And I think we also see people being brought into a vulnerable space when they weren't before. So tenants, you know, traditionally maybe aren't the most vulnerable people in society, but now are facing increased levels of uh, threat to their tenure security. Neighbours is an interesting one because we wonder if we'll see some case law about what constitutes reasonable use. Does how you use, will it change how you're allowed to use your property um, given that you're using your home now as a place of work, perhaps a place of education for your child, all sorts of things. Um, and it's also been interesting to look into how sectional title schemes have been responding. You know, are their rules flexible enough to respond to those types of crisis when they were actually created with a very different type of interaction uh, in mind for things like meetings and et cetera. Um, in South Africa, we also see interesting constitutional questions coming up. Um, the constitutionality of regulations that affect the use, enjoyment, and exploitation of property rights. Um, we, in the right in the beginning of the crisis, we saw things like uh, shops marking up the prices for face masks by two hundred and sixty-one percent. You know, and that was quickly then regulated by the government. But you know, there was a property question, you know, at the forefront of that when when the government first enacted that regulation. Uh, things like second homes, people not being allowed to travel between their homes, you know, businesses being classified as essential or not essential, etc. So, you know, just a plethora of, of, of questions coming to the fore where property can play a bigger or smaller role depending on um, how much we think we should be protecting existing property rights and property relationships and how much do we think uh, we should give weight to uh, a crisis of public health and what will this mean in creating precedent for, you know, a next crisis? In South Africa, then, we also had a very interesting question that hasn't been fully explored, where we haven't had a state of emergency, thankfully, since before 1994 during apartheid, when it was unfortunately very common. Uh, but we do have the provision still that a state of emergency can be declared, and it will have very significant um, uh, um, implications for our Bill of Rights. And property, of course, is one of our rights in the Bill of Rights. And so our government at this point opted to declare rather a state of national emergency rather than a state of a state of national disaster, not a state of emergency. Um, but these are all new questions of whether it would have been different or better. Would they have been able to regulate more efficiently and effectively if they had chosen uh, to opt for the state of emergency rather than a state of disaster? Um, because really the question of how property would be protected during a state of emergency is a question that just hasn't come up, you know, since um, we've, 
yeah, it's just not gotten a lot of constitutional attention. And suddenly it became crucial for people to have an understanding of it. And it's been a really neglected area of, of research. Um, sorry, I'm just rushing through all these ideas. I'm really hoping we can pick up uh, on them in the, in, in, in the, in the discussion or debate. Um, but I think coronavirus brought to the fore questions and concerns we already had in South Africa about um, companies using public funds to create uh, intellectual property um, and that property, that intellectual property is then uh, privatized or commercialized. Um, you know, the sort of conflict we see between different constitutional fundamental rights in South Africa, the role of, you know, do we just assume that intellectual property should be con constitutionally protected in the same way as other types of property? Uh, very interesting questions arising there. And then another really interesting one is the effect that the pandemic will have on town and spatial planning in the future because I think South Africa has been quite late to the game in committing to densification, especially in urban areas, and to try and counteract urban sprawl. And now the conversation suddenly became more difficult again. So we just had massive breakthroughs in the last sort of two to three years where there's been serious commitments uh, made to, you know, to densify and to oppose single dwelling uh, developments, etc., you know, in, for the sake of protecting biodiversity and so forth. And now suddenly there's pushback against it once more saying, well, you know, if there's a risk that we're going to be locked up in our houses for longer periods of time, I want a lawn, I want this. I don't, I, you know, people don't, we don't, as property developers, we don't want to now build flats because people don't want to live in apartments. They want space, they want privacy, uh, they want security. And so all of a sudden we back to, not quite back to square one, but we are in the sort of in the, property development space, we now seeing renewed resistance to uh, previous commitments that were made um, to try and protect the environment with a certain development plan. And now that development plan is really coming into uh, conflict, I guess, with people's experience of what it was like to be in lockdown in an apartment with communal spaces being closed down um, and people really benefiting from having private spaces, you know, perhaps unfairly and I think that really you know is at the heart of the South African problem is that we do have this really extreme legacy of spatial apartheid where the white areas or formerly white areas have good infrastructure there are grocery stores there are private spaces there are communal well-kept green spaces to some extent and that is just not something that people in informal settlements or uh, lesser served areas would have access to. And so to say that we're all in the same boat during this kind of national crisis or global crisis is really just not true at all. The sacrifice is really not the same um, when you, for example, didn't have the means to hoard food for two weeks or, you know, and you were at risk of going hungry for, you know, it's, we're just not, not having the same conversation at all. And I think that actually is one of the silver linings maybe of the pandemic is that it really brought these sort of um, differences into, you know, in, just into the center of the picture and into the center of the conversation for the first time in a long time. And as Jill said, you know, there's a real dedication, I think, and an interest in using this momentum to create the, the reform that's needed um, to make sure that the, the way we fundamentally discuss and think about and understand property rights would be different um, going forward. And I hope, I really hope that that will uh, be the case. So then just to sum up, I think um, in South Africa, we have a problematic uh, 
history of the power relationships that underpin property law and those aren't going anywhere anytime soon. It takes real dedication to unpack and understand um, the legal culture that upholds um, a certain you know, property system that exists. But it's worth it to see the social effects that that system has. And I think Corona has really showed really clearly what potential negative effects there are when something like this hits and some people can retreat into a safe space and some people can, you know, sort of live a life that's similar to the one they had and others really cannot. Um, there's a real conversation about the safety net that was created by the government during this time and that will be revoked um, you know, in the next few months and what that will mean for people. So things like, you know, housing assistance for the homeless, uh, suspension on eviction, uh, the various relief schemes, etc. We're very concerned about property aspects of it, but also human, just broader human rights aspects of what it will mean for government to uh, withdraw its support based on, on, on budgetary constraint uh, concerns. And then that just brings me to a you know, just the sort of concluding point of for us in South Africa, at least, there's no normal to return to. And I think it might be true in other countries, you know, as well, where the, the, the status quo wasn't good enough. Um, and that's really <laughs> the long and the short of it. We need to think of a new normal. And, we, you know, we want to actively be engaged in that process and in that project. And it's a really challenging uh, thing to think about and undertake. But I think we just all part of that process of thinking about what could the new normal look like and how do we bring all these people in the, like whose interests have been marginalized for so long, how do we bring it into the center uh, to make sure that it's really, really part of the conversation rather than an afterthought or just a side effect of the system that we choose to uphold. All right. Thank you so much. Absolutely wonderful, Elzebi. Thank you so much. Which dear friends, brings us to the to the, the presentation part of our, our first panel. We are running a little bit late, but it's okay. Um, we are still more or less on track. I think there's there uh, there should be time for some discussion. And um, I think Jill and Elzebi and I are hoping we, we, we can have some discussion. Um, is there anyone who wants to remark, contribute, challenge, contradict, whatever it is that you want to? We are, we are open to... Talk about anything. Chef. Just to start the conversation. Um, now, when I'm listening to all three of you, my impression is that you describe cracks that already were present in the system. And that what COVID is doing is suddenly like a sort of pressure cooker, bringing the cracks more visible, making them more visible and making them deeper. Um, and... So what you are describing, isn't that really a process that it was already going on and that we are now confronted with the consequences much sooner than otherwise would have happened? And responding to, well, if, what if, if there is no new, no back to the old normal? Um, when I listen to virologists, there is no back to a old normal because what they tell us is this is one wave of a pandemic but we will have more of these waves. It's just the first. So how can we create an acceptable new normal? I hate that word, normal, because what is normal, right? Uh, so I wonder what you think. That's a, that's a great question. Jill Elsbeth, I have two sentences and then I'll, I'll pass to you, okay? So I agree, Chef. I think we are describing cracks that were already there, but I think what the, what the, what the 
pandemic does is it creates urgency to deal with that. And it perhaps creates so much urgency that I don't like economic analogies, but that, that the costs of doing something, so to say, are now lower than keeping it. Um, you know, I, th- I think th- m- there's momentum for systemic change. And I wish, and I'm also referring to what Elzebi said about John's work here on, on Hurricane Katrina, I wish it would have been the same already after, and it should have been the same already after Hurricane Katrina. But now we, there's a global um, um, uh, there's a global crisis. And I would say it, it creates momentum and urgency to do this. That's what I, I wanted to add, but Jill. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Chef. I, I think for for me, there's been moments when um, I feel like I can't ignore an issue in relation to property law. And as soon as I see something, I feel like I can't unsee it. So I feel like that happened in relation to sustainability issues and, and climate change a while ago. <laughs> and then I didn't... I didn't know quite how to deal with it, but I've kept, I've had, it's, I feel like I can't just keep saying, oh, that's nothing to do with me. Um, This isn't about, this, this isn't about environment, property law is about environmental law. And um, the barriers that I had in my mind, I felt like I had to address them. And I, I feel it's the same in relation to the current crisis, I mean, I'm not somebody who's like a home researcher. I'm not somebody who who, who has studied in detail eviction, for example, um, as you know. <laughs> but when I am told to stay in my home and I can see that people don't have homes, even just as a, a person... I think, gosh, what what is this? This is to do with my scholarship. This is to do with my area of law. This is to do with the system that I operate in. So, in in that sense, I suppose that's one thing I think they say about climate change: that if you don't actually feel the particular effects of it, then it's difficult to think that it's anything to do with you. Um, I think, in relation to Corona, we can all see that it's something to do with us. And then, how? Then the question is, what does this mean for our scholarship? What does this mean for how we teach our students? I can't avoid Corona regulations because you know it changes the eviction grounds. So when I teach my students, I have to say, "Did you see that? Did you see that bit where it says temporary amendment? Um, what do you think that's about?" Um, so that's why I think. I agree that the the cracks are the cracks were there before, and there were people who were dedicated to social justice who were trying to make us see them. And to me now, I think the crack is like staring us in the face every time we go outside. <laughs> Elsa B. I will just agree with both of you and add to it, Chef. Thank you. I think you pick up on something that I picked up on or I eventually got to as well and which is why my sub project in the project I mentioned is actually related to resilience theory uh, and the insight that we can get from other disciplines that explain that you know we can think of a system uh, a healthy or you know sort of an appropriate system that can bounce back to its previous version as you say there's no normal but a previous version of it 
But actually, these insights from this theory, you know, shows us that systems can adapt and, and sort of take on new insights and change and be a new system uh, with some, you know, elements of the previous one, but improved. And so I think it's a really interesting aspect to, to unpack about, um, you know, as you're completely right in saying, of course, these cracks existed before um, and this disturbance uh, just basically you know, rushed along the inevitable. And I think that's very worth thinking about, um, about what, what does that mean? Because we, we did see these problems already to some extent, even prior to the virus. And I think that's also an insightful point about the future because these things will come again. And how will we, how will we be ready? Will we do any better in responding to it in the future? So I think that's a very good point uh, to pick up on. And I think something for all of us to keep in mind uh, in, when we think about how to, how to address these challenges. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Bjorn Hopes. Thank you, Bram, and thank you to all three of you uh, for your inspiring talks. Um, I would like to raise a question, like the simplified version of it is, what is sustainability? And now I realize it's the wrong question, but I think the more complicated version of that is, how do we as lawyers and as legal scientists deal with controversies and other scientific arenas about the right way to sustainability. What do I mean by that? So to me, it seems there are at least two ways that people discuss about it. And you also find that in the books that Bram presented to us. So there is the, the people that believe in green growth that say, oh, we only need some kind of renewable energy source, and then we'll all be fine. We'll fight climate change and preserve out our wealth at the same time. That's the kind of research that you'll find uh, in the Netherlands when we talk about accession and solar panels. You know, how do we facilitate the, um, uh, the energy transition? It also concerns a large part of my research. And then there are the, the types of Hugo Matei, uh, but also Laura Burgers, all, all the people who talk about the preservation of nature accord, um, according legal personality to it and, um, say, uh, reintroducing the, co- the commons and, uh, and replacing private property with the commons. But is that, this, you know, those are two completely different types of research. So what does, when we talk about sustainability, uh, what do we mean by that? And how do we deal with this discussion? That's essentially uh, the question that I'm struggling to answer. Thanks, Bjorn. Uh, I, th- I think my immediate, my more immediate reaction um, or most immediate reaction to that is I probably fall into the latter group. Sorry, Bjorn. <laughs> um I feel like I'm somebody who would lean towards trying to disturb nature, like tread lightly. Um, Because it seems like when we haven't considered the consequences in the past, then um, it results in problems. You know, the, the, this whole pandemic that we're going through has also been attributed to biodiversity loss, overpopulation, 
um, and being too close to depriving wild animals of their natural habitats. So it's that, I think it, to me, it's trying to, sustainability is really living within the Earth's limits. And I'm not convinced that a te- there will be a technological revolution which will change everything. Because if we rely on that, um, it's often for um, it's often for things that are are un um, uninvent not invented now, um, and therefore we're just relying on some magic wand being created in the future that will save us. So, to me, I, I feel like the what I'm aiming for is is thinking about disturbing nature to a lesser extent than than we have been doing. But I think trying to balance that within a social justice concern is is the is the real struggle. When you're thinking about strong sustainability, um poor communities, uh where you know you're making trade offs that are, are incredibly challenging, that's that's when the, the difficult questions start. I like Holthouse's book in this respect, Bjorn, because he, he investigates a lot of the technological solutions that are there, and then he describes what we would actually have to invent to be able to do it. I, I like this very much in this, in this, uh, from this perspective. That's all I, I wanted to add. Anything to add, Elza B? I have some thoughts to add, but I just seem to have some other questions, and I don't think any of my thoughts are so incredible that it's going to actually answer Bjorn's, you know, excellent question in one sentence. So I would much rather hear from other people and and take, you know, talk more maybe separately or with other people also interested. That's fine. Thanks, Elza B. Thanks, Bjorn. Augustine. Thank you very much, Bram, and all the speakers. Mine is, is a comment, and it points to one of the books that that uh, Bram shared on the screen, that one about Dugi and the, and the social obligation norm. Uh, and what I find fascinating, Bram, so first of all, thank you for including it <laughs> for the reference. Uh, I, I took notice of this book. Last year, I was at McGill doing research there, and the author of the Canadian chapter, uh, Alexandra, shared with me her, her ideas and her work. And, and I find it fascinating in the sense that just by the contents, but also in the title, you can visualize that they're bringing together, on the one hand, a social uh, function that is a very, let's say, continental European element, and the uh, obligation norm that is a very, let's say, east, northeast uh, coast of the U.S. Uh, so common law, civil law coming together, and also you can see in the contributions, uh, Chris Odinette, uh, from previously from Southern, uh, where Mark is now, uh, then Matthew Meadow and a few more from, from Florida, so I really like this this uh, this book in the sense that it's it's finally bringing together two narratives that until recent were walking the same road but were not holding hands. So it's very visual. And in light of the of the holding hands, uh, you can see the the there's an uh, that book includes the translation. Uh, and there's an earlier one that not many people are working with. But in case you're interested, is uh, was included in a book by uh, John Wigmore. That's volume 11 of the Continental Legal History. And it was published in, if I'm not wrong, 1918. And the lecture that was translated is from 1911. So that's really contemporary to the time of the, of the talk. So that was just a comment. And, and I'm grateful for all the speakers because it really 
challenges our, our view and we realize that property law is far from being quiet. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you so much, Augustine. We go to Mark Rock and then we go to Bonnie. Yeah, uh, thanks everyone. And and I agree, I concur. The, the discussion on sustainability is one that we um, need to have at the forefront of thinking about property. Um, I, I, my question is kind of directed to Jill because I think uh, one of the things I thought was, was interesting was you were talking about the tension around travelers and these designated spots for travelers. And one of the things that was, I, I, I think is an interesting parallel is in the U S you have the emergence of um, what, what we've called tiny villages or tiny homes. And oftentimes these tiny homes are built around um, identity uh, sort of identity affinity groups uh, of, of homeless persons. And probably the most common is veterans. So like uh, veterans become low hanging fruit for communities that are trying to do something about homelessness um, and so it's really easy to get agreement. But one of the things that strikes me, um, there's, there's an article written by Ananiah Roy um, titled Property, Assi- Property and Citizenship. And, um, and she kind of makes this point about how just asking that basic question about citizenship through, uh, through various proxies um, articulates um, the, the fissures within, within the social environment. Right. And so like, like the moment that we begin saying, okay, well, we're going to set aside this place for, for homeless veterans. We, we kind of omit or leave out the other homeless people who didn't fit into the category that we, uh, thought should have access to property, um, through the citizenship lens. So I, I kind of wonder like if there's the same dynamic, going on with travelers in the sense that, you know, if you can form your identity within this space, as we have defined what your identity should be, you're welcome to participate, to have this space, to occupy it. Or if it's a much broader, much more pluralistic vision of what community and citizenship looks like in that, in that environment and, and how much that relates to its ability to sustain itself over time. Okay, that's. I think that's a really interesting, uh, really interesting question. Um, I, in relation to citizenship, one thing that that um, when I was reading the homelessness report uh, in the time of Corona, one thing that they were asking of the UK government was, uh, or the Westminster government was, not uh, discriminating homelessness provision if you were. Um, an undocumented immigrant, for example. So just the fact that you were in the country and homeless and facing a public health risk should mean that you should be provided with services. Um, so it, it's, it's, all, it's interesting when you said, I mean, I'd never, I hadn't I've thought of the connection with citizenship necessarily there, but um, that was just because you're a human being, you should maybe be taken care of, you know, regardless of what documentation you might have with you or not. Um, and I, I think that in relation to um, traveler and gypsy communities, that wasn't necessarily actually something which was mentioned in 
the report I was reading that I saw, but um, one thing was uh, the numbers of the communities who are living in this unconventional way or traveling way are often um, the off the system as well. So they don't have bank accounts. Um, they rely on cash in hand. Um, and when there are, again, these un, unintended consequences. So who carries cash at the moment? <laughs> um, I certainly haven't had any cash in my hand for like nine months because I feel it's like a vector. Uh, so I think these... Um, this traditional connection almost like with with property law and citizenship and, and the services you're entitled to because you're a national maybe are are shifting again of think of thinking well you're in this place and you're at risk so therefore you should receive services but whether we then revert back to well you need to be registered on a system and and deemed appropriate for um, care or from us maybe something that we kind of revert back to and then it is about identity you need to fall into this group rather than you are factually just at risk Bonnie you're the last thanks everyone I'll be very brief can, to end on a positive note can, can I hear from all the speakers about one thing that as property lawyers we could work on um, that might make a positive change if there, if there was one thing what would it be um, beautiful question beautiful question um, shall I I'll, I'll, let's do the order of the, of the speakers for me very easy community we have to work more on, on the concept of community and, and how property relates to that. Um. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, I think that it kind of ref- reflects or my how I try and deal with this issue is for many, many years, I felt like I was thinking that things were not to do with me. So I think it's so easy for us to think, that's private law, not public law. That's pro- that's contract law, not property. That's environmental law. That's something other than what is to do with me. And whenever I think that now, I think, is that true? <laughs> do I have nothing to contribute to Corona? Do I have nothing to contribute to the climate crisis? I mean, it's a little bit easier for me to see the connection with water, but um, I used to think for a long time, human right to water was nothing to do with me. Like, okay. Like, I think I've, I've changed my view. (laughs) Um, but I, I feel like these are barriers that we are, we are, we, that are present in the legal system and they maybe shouldn't necessarily be. So that's the challenge I face every day when I try and think, is is this, is this something to do with me? (laughs) I'll just briefly weigh in, Bonnie. Thanks. Lovely question, as I I said in the chat. Um, I would say property lawyers should be skeptical when they're applying any rule, any piece of doctrine, any principle to challenge yourself to think what what is it hiding from view? Is it making things look neutral that is not neutral, that is not inevitable? Challenge yourself to think about what is this rule protecting and why? And does this still fit in with the society that we are actively trying to build now? 
look at the justification for the way the rules are formulated or the way they're applied, our methods, our legal culture, any, any, whatever your, your thing is that you do, I think just be very open to, to challenge your own assumptions of why it looks the way it looks. And yeah, I think that that would be an amazing thing to, to see and do and hear more of. Welcome back, everyone. It's really great to see you. Um, um, we are, at, at, at least in the Netherlands, it's now four o'clock um, at the end of a, of a long conference. So I'm very happy that, that so many of us are still here. Um, and I hope in my strategic planning of the, of the conference, I did well by, by saving the heavyweights, uh, you know, for the, for, for the end. Uh, you know, the, 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 those that attract the most audience. Dear everyone, I don't think I need to give much, much introduction um, uh, to those panelists, but very quickly. Um, and so Lorna is professor of law at Essex Law School, and she is deputy vice chancellor at the University of Essex, which means I think she is extremely busy with the with dealing with with Corona. Also, uh, you know, on an on an everyday basis, more than most of us. Mark Mark Rourke is an associate professor and senior fellow at, in the Indian Law and Policy Institute at the Southern University Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And John Lovett is the, there we go again, John, the D. Van D. Daggett Jr. I now practiced, distinguished professor of law at Loyola Law School at New Orleans. Um, I'm extremely delighted, all three of you, that you were willing to do this. And I just want to highlight, um, and I'm, I'm hoping Lorna will forgive me, um, by thanking John and Mark spe specifically because they are recovering from Thanksgiving. Uh, thank you very much, Bram. Uh, and thank you all for uh, sticking through to this uh, last session. Um, really pleased to be here, especially pleased to be part of uh, this event honouring Chef uh, as he approaches his retirement. Uh, Chef, you've been a wonderful friend to all of us in the property community around the world. And uh, it's wonderful to be part of this occasion uh, to celebrate and wish you well uh, as you approach your retirement. So I'm going to pick up on some similar themes to those uh, which we have been talking about this afternoon. Um, as we all know, in the last nine months, the world has been transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic. And particularly across the world, states have issued emergency shelter-in-place declarations in an effort to spread, uh, to stop the spread of contagion. At the same time, many states have introduced new temporary measures to mitigate major economic and property losses. So in my part of the presentation, I want to reflect on four types of property response during the pandemic. Uh, I'm going to focus on England. Uh, some of it will echo uh, some of what Jill has been talking about in Scotland, um, and similar patterns can be found in other jurisdictions. I want to reflect on this using three temporal reference points before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic. So in their wonderful paper, Property in Crisis, uh, Nestor Davidson and Rashmi Dial Chan observed that repeatedly throughout history, times of crisis have brought to the fore fundamental questions about the nature of property, the state's role in this aspect of private ordering, and the balance between individual and community. Moments of political and property crisis twist the kaleidoscope of property law and often leave a lasting residue in the property nomos. Uh, the ideas, the assumptions, the values, the norms and narratives that frame debates about private property in each jurisdiction. States' responses to property crises are located within each jurisdiction's own property nomos. 
at the same time as they accelerate the ongoing processes through which the NOMOS evolves and changes and adapts in response to shocks, stresses and strains in the environment. I want to just pause for a moment and talk about this global pandemic as an extreme shock event. So while the full impact isn't yet known, um, early indications are that the financial, the economic, social, cultural, political impacts will be on at least a scale that hasn't been experienced since World War II. So what's so different about this compared to other, for example, financial crises that we've seen in our lifetimes? Deloitte have described this as a new category of economic crisis. It's unlike all the recessions. It's a global societal shock. So, for example, while the 2008 global financial crisis was stoked by the shutoff of supply of capital, this crisis is distinctive because it's seen disruptions on both the supply side and the demand side, as mass quarantining has also cut off consumption in many key sectors. Earlier this week, in fact, I heard the BBC's economics editor describe it as the worst economic shock in more than three centuries since the great crop failure of 1706. So my point is, firstly then, we shouldn't underestimate the scale of the economic crisis ahead or the impact that it's going to have on property relations and property law. And I think this is an important point whenever we compare what we think might be happening now and what will happen next to other uh, examples of crises. So let me start with England's property nomos before the pandemic. Well, while different norms and narratives have come to the fore at different times, the idea of need as a relevant consideration in transactional property law was largely eroded from about the mid-1970s uh, in line with the political shift from post-war social democracy uh, into neoliberal norms. But that was before, and this is 2020. And the scale of the threat has led many governments and central banks to intervene with unprecedented emergency measures in order to help people in financial difficulty. So in England, the Conservative government, led by the party that introduced austerity measures as a response to the 2008 financial crisis, that same government, same party, announced a £330 billion package of emergency loan guarantees and a further £20 billion to support UK businesses. Similar programmes have been adopted in other jurisdictions, providing emergency cover and financial stimulus packages. Protections against rental evictions took two forms. Statutory extensions to notice periods, uh, to extend statutory notice periods to six months, uh, unless the tenant was in aggravated default. So that means cases of domestic violence, antisocial or unlawful behaviour, um, or rent arrears of six months or more, uh, in which case four weeks notice can be given. And the Coronavirus Act legislated a moratorium on the enforcement of eviction orders. And I want to just emphasise that it is the enforcement of eviction orders um, which are being uh, prevented at the moment. This didn't prevent claims being brought, warrants being issued, um, although the numbers of these have dropped. Um, but what it's done is delay the final enforcement stage. Of course, as Jill said, the big question of, is, is in a context where unpaid rent is continuing to accrue, what happens after the moratorium is lifted? While rental uh, evictions were dealt with through the legislation in England, uh, mortgage evictions were dealt with through the regulator. 
the Financial Conduct Authority indicated that it expected mortgage lenders to cease repossession actions, and they have overwhelmingly complied. Borrowers were empowered to ask for, so far, up to two 90-day mortgage holidays, with the expectation that deferred instalments would be capitalised, although borrowers can ask for the term to be extended instead. So what's behind this? As people were instructed to shelter in place at the same time as the economy stalled, a wave of evictions, which would normally be what would happen uh, as the economy stalls and, and people aren't able to pay their rent, a wave of evictions was only going to exacerbate the public health threat. Indeed, as communities have faced extreme economic instability, widespread evictions would risk threatening the political legitimacy of governments who fail to protect citizens' basic needs for shelter during this unprecedented period. There are two other types of response I want to mention. Um, first, looking through the welfare lens, uh, the package of relief measures in England included a furlough scheme uh, for workers unable to work during lockdown at 80% of their salary. And also a discretionary housing payment fund was created. Um, this was rolled out from central government to local authorities um, to help private and social renters with their housing costs. And then fourthly, and perhaps most notably, um, against the backdrop of before at least, the UK government and other governments introduced new initiatives to house the homeless, commandeering large, uh, sometimes temporarily empty buildings to bring homeless people off the streets and into safer environments. So in England, as in Scotland and in Ireland, the government block booked hotels of course, these were temporarily closed as travel and tourism had ceased to house rough sleepers. In June, the government announced an £85 million fund to provide emergency accommodation for about 5,500 rough sleepers to avoid them having to return to the streets when hotels reopened for business. And as with many aspects of the initial state responses to the pandemic, the concerns were expressed about what would happen once the initial funding ran out. And indeed, when the government moved into a second lockdown in November, it confirmed that it wouldn't be repeating the initiative. Now, it's important not to underestimate the challenges and the costs of delivering on commitments to support rough sleepers into accommodation in the longer term. But interesting, perhaps, that the current Conservative government had a pre-pandemic manifesto commitment to end rough sleeping by 2024. And there's something that has been accelerated in this process around the assumption of state responsibility, direct state responsibility for housing rough sleepers in privately owned property, funded by the government. And I think that's really notable. In September, the government said that over 29,000 vulnerable people had been supported into housing. After years of shrinking austerity era local government budget cuts, over £3 billion was allocated to local authorities to meet local needs during the pandemic, including protecting the most vulnerable and rough sleepers. And a further £433 million committed to provide 6,000 long-term homes for rough sleepers who are currently housed in emergency accommodation. So I want to make four observations about these initiatives uh, to reflect on their impacts during and to begin to look forward to what we might see after the crisis. And the first is just coming back to the point that this property crisis is different 
compared to other financial or economic crises. It's different in terms of its scale, and it's also different in terms of the identities of the people who are affected. Bram talked about urgency. From one perspective, pandemics are great levellers. As the leaders of the UK and the US governments have learned from their own experiences of COVID, wealth and privilege is not necessarily a protection against this virus. Actually, that's probably not quite true. Um, we know that the impact of the pandemic in terms of health, economic and social impacts has been disproportionately borne by poorer people and by black people. But in theory, at least, the fact that any embodied human is potentially at risk puts this crisis into a different category in terms of the identities of people affected, as well as in a different scale compared to other property crises. I think it's the, the point that Jill made that this is not something that is just affecting other people. Uh, this is something that is affecting all of us. Um, and that has a powerful impact in, in, in bringing it home to us um, that the people who are being affected by this pandemic could be any of us uh, and the people we care about. Um, we've talked a little bit about John's work on Hurricane Katrina. Um, another example uh, might be that when Grenfell Tower, uh, which was a low-income public housing block, home to 600 mostly poor, majority black people, went on fire in 2017. The Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, suggested that people made homeless as a result of the fire should be accommodated in privately owned vacant properties within the borough, which was one of the wealthiest in London. And a YouGov poll found that 59% of British people supported calls to requisition empty properties for homeless residents. The Conservative government didn't take up this policy proposal uh, following the Grenfell Tower fire. But I think it's really interesting to compare that to the actions that have been taken under um, the, it's in, the in, in Britain it's called the Everyone In initiative uh, to bring homeless people off the street uh, to requisition empty properties and to pay, uh, compensate those property owners with government funds. Likewise, the global financial crisis from 2007 caused displacement from homes on an even greater scale. Although again, it was the most economically vulnerable, the marginal owners and renters who were mostly affected. The government's response to that crisis was austerity. It was a very different scenario and a very different response to what we're seeing today. So my first point is that we need to look at the very different responses that we're seeing to this crisis in terms of its scale and the identities of the people affected. And I think we need to take care in the comparisons that we draw between this crisis and others that we've seen in recent decades. My second point relates to the drivers of this very different response. The non-enforcement of eviction orders and provision of shelter for homeless people, of course, confers a direct benefit on those individuals and households, for the time being at least. But it's clear that in the UK, this was not the primary driver of the measures. When the government's housing minister wrote to local government officers to explain the measures, he said, and I'll quote from his letter, the government was aware of the need to prevent displacement and homelessness in the light of the public health risk this poses in relation to the spread of infection. 
and to reduce pressures on essential public services during this time. The government's primary consideration is public health and the potential strain on an already overstretched National Health Service and local authority services. Now, noting that public health was the primary driver for the additional property protections that we've seen, such as the eviction ban, raises a crucial question about what happens after the pandemic. Firstly, in the immediate aftermath, when the risk of a return to normal enforcement practices potentially risks a tsunami of evictions, repossessions and foreclosures. But also in the short to, medium ter short to medium term, as we face into a prolonged economic downturn. We've got quite used to thinking about evictions, um, whether landlord and tenant or mortgage or mortgagee, as private disputes between two transactional parties. Since the withdrawal of safety nets and the depletion of statutory protections for tenants uh, from about the 1980s, the state's role in these property law actions has largely been perceived as limited to the recognition and enforcement of rights-based claims. But the scale of the disruption that we're seeing today has brought the state's own stake in these property transactions to the foreground. During the pandemic, the government has legislated to prevent landlords recovering property from tenants. The collective public interest has been prioritised over individual property rights. Now, to some, from some jurisdictions, that may seem uncontroversial. For many jurisdictions, this is built into the constitutional balancing of private rights and public interest. But for England, both in terms of the law before the pandemic and also in terms of the narratives about property, the change of frame between before the pandemic and during is pretty stark. So what about after? In the immediate aftermath, a return to business as usual on the enforcement of private property claims would likely lead to a massive spike in evictions. And this would be likely to have major implications for markets and for the state. So let's think about the impact of a sharp uptick in evictions leading to homelessness on what will continue to be overstretched public services, health services, in struggling labour markets, and for the National Economic Recovery Project. Let's look at it through the lens of the landlords and the banks, and for property markets. The compound effect of a tsunami of evictions in driving up voids and empty properties during a tough recession. For most landlords, partial rent is better than no rent, and in a really tough economic climate, practices of relying on strict legal rights that lead to vacancies and voids are economically irrational, both in terms of revenue and also in terms of the risk of declining capital value. And with a nod to the book that Mark and I have almost completed, increased homelessness, an economic and housing crisis and a rise in empty properties are absolutely prime conditions for a sharp uptick in squatting. Practically speaking, landlords and banks might struggle to realise the benefits of eviction and may find that rather than relying on their strict legal rights, forbearance, renegotiation and compromise are vital mechanisms to mitigate their losses and avoid further losses.
So I think we're going to continue to see the state as a much more visible stakeholder in private property law. As we transition from the public health crisis to the economic crisis that will follow it, the national need will also evolve from a national public health need to an economic recovery need, with the collective interest and the state's own stake in the property system remaining visible. So thirdly, and building on from this, during the pandemic, we've seen a rebalancing between ideology and pragmatism. Some of the actions that the UK government has taken are striking for the scale of their departure from what had become, before the pandemic, embedded ideological commitments with respect to private property rights. A long period of economic recovery, as the UK copes with the economic losses of the pandemic and Brexit at the same time, is likely to trigger an ongoing rebalancing between ideology and pragmatism in property law. I think we're already seeing this in the way in which the Conservative government is shifting its positions on key questions of property. And a shift towards pragmatism over the longer term raises greater likelihood of a lasting impact on property system norms, on citizens' expectations from the state in relation to property, and then in turn on electoral politics and property law adjudication when the economic crisis finally recedes. And fourthly, in this period, we've seen a rebalancing between the needs of the individual and the needs of the collective. The collective need, at the moment the public health need, of keeping people in place has been temporarily prioritised over the rights of individual landlords or mortgagees to recover property in default. It's been a long time since we've seen such a clear example of how property crises foreground these fundamental questions about the balance between the individual and the community. Looking beyond the narrower sphere of housing and home, which I focused on in, in this talk, the pandemic has shone a new light on broader questions about need, distribution, and the role of the state in mitigating the impact of hardship for citizens. And I think this is likely to continue through the recovery period. So finally, um, Looking at the UK government's responses to the pandemic, it's reminiscent of wartime emergency measures. So as I close, I'm reminded of the sea change in England's property norms in the aftermath of World War II. Now, we can look at the post-war solidarity period through the romantic lens of ideology, the Homes for Heroes narrative, but more importantly, I would suggest we should recognise the pragmatic purposes that it served in shoring up the national need for economic recovery. So as we think about how property law might change after the pandemic, I would suggest that while it's early to say with certainty, we should expect that it will be different from before. Uh, there's more I might say about how that would play out, but I think I'll leave it there and uh, look forward to comments and questions. Thank you very much, Fran. Thank you so much, Lorna. Oh, that's I have I have many questions, but I'm not going to abuse my 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 chair position on this. Lorna, would you mind if we if we do the the other talk immediately after and then we collect and then do a a big discussion? Okay, thank Perfect. you. Perfect. So, I'd love to hear from Mark right. and John. Thanks, thanks, Lorna. All right, John, Mark. So, uh, so John and I talked about uh, tag teaming and uh, how we would divide this time. So, I think basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of lay out the landscape of what 
the responses to COVID have been in the U.S., which are multi-varied, multi-dimensional, multi-scaled in a lot of different ways. Um, and maybe drop in a few comments, and then John's going to pick up from there and 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 uh, make some overall observations, and and I may chime in from time to time after that as well. So I think the first place to start is is a place where Lorna left off, which is that that property law is rarely just private, and and I think COVID has highlighted that aspect of how the public responses. Um, um, intervene within what is traditionally narratively framed in the U.S. as a rivalrous relationship. So I want to kind of lay out how this has happened and how public spaces have intervened. So, so generally, I think that there, we could categorize um, state responses into about seven different sectors for how states have looked at the way they are going to respond to COVID or how U.S. states have responded to COVID. Um, the Kind of the first, the underlying response was what we call de facto moratoriums. So these are moratoriums on evictions that largely occurred because courts were shut down. So between March and June of, of this year, uh, most courts in the U.S. were closed uh, due to social distancing norms. Um, some states formalized that uh, moratorium uh, by specifically entering orders uh, stipulating that no evictions could occur. One of the effects of that was to uh, disempower private landlords from exercising self-help remedies in the face of, of a public closure of, of the public court access. Um, but mostly uh, these were not actions that were taken by the state directly to uh, reset eviction uh, actions um, related to the to the pandemic. It was really much more of an administrative function of recognizing that courts were no longer open. And one of the things I think it highlights is it it absolutely highlights the the absolute necessity that state action has to enforce private claims. Right? If the courts aren't open, the the courts are or the states are effectively recognizing that evictions can't go on. Um, these de facto moratoriums largely end by, or all of them end by June 1st. Uh, states that, that did something beyond this typically exercised other moratoriums that extended beyond that date. Um, in that same context, you saw Congress springing to action twice. So Congress um, enacted two federal moratoriums on evictions. Um, that One fell under the CARES Act. Um, the CARES Act uh, required individuals who are extended to individuals who had lost employment due to COVID um, restrictions um, and gave them uh, relief from evictions for a shorter period, for a shortened period of time uh, for its application. It did not apply to people who were furloughed or people who just merely reduced hours. They had to show that they actually lost the employment in order to have uh, the CARES Act uh, moratorium applied. Then subsequently in September, the CDC passed its own separate moratorium uh, as a public health concern. And that CDC moratorium was a little bit broader, was a little bit more um, effective, but it also required the, the tenants to assert more, um, uh, to, to, to show more of a need of displacement or the potential displacement in order for it to be effective. 
Within the interim time, you have states that also pass specific moratoriums within their states. Approximately 31 states extended moratoriums beyond the de facto uh, closure of courts. Um, most of these moratoriums have expired. Uh, many of them uh, expired uh, between July uh, and October. Um, and currently, there are only nine states that still have a moratorium in place uh, that covers COVID-related uh, evictions, um, that is, closing off evictions. One of the important things to, to recognize about these moratoriums, though, these moratoriums did not apply to um, to eviction actions that stemmed from uh, causes prior to COVID. So you had this really um, interesting and strange um, uh recognition within some of these moratoriums that if someone was uh, in, entitled to an eviction or a landlord is entitled to an eviction prior to the COVID uh, period, um, and that eviction had been delayed as a result of the administrative court functions, they could pick, the landlords could pick right up with those evictions as soon as the courts reopen. Um, so the state moratoriums did not delay pre-COVID uh, or did not further delay pre-COVID uh, evictions, even if those evictions would have continued to cause, even if the people who were evicted would have been entitled to uh, protection under the moratorium passed after COVID. Um, the second thing that it did not apply is it didn't actually display the ob- displace the obligation to pay rent. So um, in many of the state, in, in all of the states, the obligation to pay rent remained intact. Uh, now, one of the interesting things, and I think John's going to pick up on this a little in, in a little bit, but uh, what, one of the interesting things is whether the act of eviction still applied to those past due um, to those past due amounts. Um, only one state, from what we've been able to tell, California, um, has specifically prevented um, eviction actions from. Uh, being used to collect past due rent uh, that was accrued during the COVID period or during the emergency period uh, or penalties. Uh, every other state seems to be, seems to allow that. California specifically uh, stipulated uh, the availability of small claims courts uh, for uh, landlords to collect those amounts as a separate contractual matter, but not displace uh, individuals. The fourth big category that we have in the U.S. Um, related to state relates to state requirements to communicate to uh, tenants um, um, rights of federal relief that may emerge. So some states, when they change, when they um, terminated their moratorium or their moratorium came to an end. Um, they specifically imposed a new requirement that landlord that that or that tenants be informed in some manner uh, of federal relief that may be available. Um, at least one state terminated its mor- moratorium early, Kentucky, uh, after the CDC passed its moratorium. So in September, the state of Kentucky terminated its moratorium, which was originally due to be extended through October. They terminated their moratorium in September. Uh, but then specifically adopted the terms of the CDC moratorium 
as as the limits for for how its moratorium would be uh, be um, applied. Um, in this context, some states required landlords to inform tenants um, of of the various uh, federal reforms uh, uh, as a part of the notice of eviction. So in order, you know, in order to, to serve adequate notice, they had to accompany that with a specific official notice to say you may be entitled to some relief under federal statute. Uh, some, some states have required landlords to show as a part of their eviction filings that the tenant would not be covered by the federal programs so that, that uh, uh, tenants should be, you know, that landlords uh, may be limited in their ability to carry out those evictions if federal law otherwise would have covered. Some states have required that tenants show that they are ineligible for these federal programs uh, in order to receive uh, portions of state relief. So they've, they've, some states have put this burden on tenants to be able to show that they have actually um, uh, tried to obtain federal relief but are ineligible uh, for, uh, for, before they can get um, uh, access. And then some states – uh, as I said before, have limited their uh, reframe moratoriums uh, to mirror the federal moratoriums um, and, and simply adopted this. Uh, just three more real quick. Uh, some states have uh, um, some states in response to all of these various actions and the different types of moratoriums and the rolling back of moratorium actions have tried to fill that gap with supplemental support regimes. So many states have invested new doll- new monies that tenants would have access to. But as I mentioned in, the, in that prior moment, tenants oftentimes have uh, additional burdens they have to meet in order to reach those assets. They have to fill out they, or they have to show that they would not otherwise be inel- eligible for federal support um, or, uh, or other uh, relief granting uh, mechanisms. Uh, several states have extended time periods as part uh, of, of their law for either cure or, or notice of eviction proceedings uh, in relationship to, to the landlord's rights. Um, many of these uh, instances have rolled in in conjunction with the rolling back of state moratoriums. So as states rolled back their moratoriums, they also implemented additional time periods for cure and for, um, for notice. And then lastly, uh, many states have enacted uh, moratoriums on utility shutoffs. Uh, so many states have um, uh, provided that, uh, that, that private utilities cannot shut off uh, tenants' uh, power for lack of payment, um, which is an interesting contrast in a number of the states where you saw states that only relied on the de facto uh, provision for uh, a moratorium where the moratorium was just merely based on court closure and nothing more. Some of those states have also enacted the moratorium on utility shutoffs. Um, So whereas states were not willing to cut off eviction proceedings um, in one setting, they were willing to cut off uh, private utility companies or, you know, public service utility companies and others. Okay. So that's kind of the landscape of what we're looking like in the U S. And so I'm going to tag in John and, um, and then we'll come back and do more. 
Thank you. Um, thanks, Mark, for passing the baton. That was a superb uh, overview of the really complicated uh, landscape of uh, COVID responses to uh, the uh, problem of eviction and, uh, and people being behind on their rent. Uh, I'm going to just make a couple of observations uh, that are a little bit more global, and they're going to kind of vary uh, uh, in scale. Some will uh, be national in focus, and then if you kind of follow a sine curve, some will dip down and be very local. And, and so I'll be going up and down this sine curve of, of global and local responses. But the first uh, point I would like to make about all of these moratoria that Mark so ably described is that whether they're issued by the federal government uh, through the CDC or result of Congress or whether they're a result of state initiatives, either at the hands of the executive or the state legislature, all of them are meaningless if tenants do not know about their rights under the moratoria. Uh, another way of thinking about this is that property rights are not self-executing, at least in the United States. We have a system that really depends on assertion of your rights in an adversarial system. Uh, we can't count on judges to be uh, uh, the parties who will actually inform uh, vulnerable parties of their rights under the law. Uh, we have data on this in New Orleans, sadly. Uh, we know that uh, tenants here generally don't know about their rights to challenge evictions under any law. 54 of, of percent of tenants facing eviction to, uh, don't even come to court hearings. And 80% of those who do attend are unrepresented by counsel. So although they may have this, this set of uh, rich rights that, that are at least temporary or maybe longer, uh, many of them won't know how to take advantage of them. So the insight that Mark and I would like to draw from this is that property law really, property law's communicative value or its need for more communicative capacity uh, should probably be something we should study. If people don't know about those pro their property rights, those rights are, are meaningless. Uh, we probably need to think further about who bears the burden of communicating those rights. Um, a second uh, observation that, that uh, I want to point out, uh, or a, another insight, is that default rules actually matter a great deal in these contexts of crises. Although the CDC order that Mark described uh, prohibits evictions based on non-payment for rent. The order was ambiguous as to whether landlords could evict tenants simply on the ground that their lease term had ended. Uh, advocates here noted, for example, this may have been in the order, but the fact that the order itself was ambiguous tells us that default rules about things like what we call in Louisiana, using the civil law term, reconduction of a lease leave tenants in a very vulnerable condition in a time of crisis. Uh, and the default rule, just to illustrate this briefly, is under Louisiana, is that if a lessor allows a lessee to remain in possession of a, of a lease premises after expiration of the term for more than a week, we say the lease, quote, reconducts under the Louisiana Civil Code, and the code provides that the term of the reconducted non-agricultural lease will be month to month in the case of a lease whose term is for a month or longer. 
Um, because most landlords here uh, give a tenant an initial one-year lease, if the tenant stays in possession and continues to pay rent, the one-year lease then turns into a month-to-month lease, unless the parties expressly agree that a new term uh, is going to, unless they agree to a, a new term for longer than a month. And although this kind of arrangement may seem very attractive to both parties in a time of stability, if the tenant has stable income, the landlord is happy with the tenant's occupancy, it leaves the landlord with a real opportunity for mischief if suddenly the landlord wants to terminate reasons for other, terminate lease for other than non-payment. So maybe the theoretical insight here is default rules always matter, but they may produce inequity in moments of crisis. Um, Mark already alert, uh, alluded to the importance of burden of proof. This is something that local housing advocates have really stressed. Does a tenant have to prove the facts required for eligibility for an eviction for, uh, moratorium relief, or does the landlord have to prove that their property is not covered, not one of the protected classes of property? Uh, I don't want to get into the details here, but that is an important issue, and it's tied to this question of representation. Another thing that I think, my fourth point, I think, is, is really a, the big takeaway from all of Mark's very detailed analysis of the state-by-state state, uh, uh, landscape here, is that because of our federal system in the United States and because property law is primarily uh, created at the state level, we have incredible inequality of property protection from state to state. Um, there's a wonderful source in the United States called Eviction Lab, which Mark and I have been using to get some of the details. And, for example, Minnesota, which is a state that you may have uh, become aware of because of its importance in the crisis over George Floyd this summer, although it has problems, it is the highest rated state in the United States. It has uh, all kinds of rules. Uh, landlords cannot give notice of eviction to tenants. There's no filing if a tenant has a COVID-19 hardship. Um, there's no filing except in cases of emergencies, hearings are suspended, eviction records are sealed. Uh, the list goes on of the, uh, there's a foreclosure moratorium. There's no removal for the tenant for non-payment. Uh, there's lots of housing stabilization efforts in play. We'll just follow the Mississippi river due South and get to Louisiana or go a little bit East and get to Mark state in Georgia. And both of our states rate absolute zero on the eviction lab scale. And aside from the CDC moratoria, our state governments have done absolutely nothing to protect tenants. Now, individual cities have done some things. Individual state courts have done better or worse jobs uh, implementing the CDC and CARES Act moratoria, but it really depends on, on where you live. And that is, I think, a problem of our system, which leads to my fifth point which is the absolute urgency for a federal response in the United States. Uh, and Mark already pointed out both the two major moratoria in the U.S., uh, the CDC moratoria, the, the later one, expires December 31st in about five weeks. Uh, and uh, all these, although those did a lot of good, none dealt with the big problem, the accumulation of back rent owed to landlords uh, as rent arrears. Uh, some have predicted that the rent arrears could amount to somewhere between 34 to $70 billion in total value. Uh, if the back rent's not forgiven, landlords could still evict tenants in the new year. And as Laura pointed out, this could lead to an eviction tsunami, 
And that is the term that you see over and over again, mixing metaphors, uh, the natural disaster merging with the man-made disaster here. And there is some good news. President-elect Biden, and I've been waiting to say that, uh, those three words, with, with uh, uh, some excitement, uh, has proposed that federal emergency funds be allowed to be used for rent relief. And this is clearly a good idea. Uh, but advocates uh, suggest that, that pr- Biden probably needs to go further and actually specify that the emergency funds be used for rent relief and specifically set aside a certain amount of those funds. One thing we know from Hurricane Katrina and other disasters in the U.S., even though you may say renters are a, a, a population that's eligible to qualify for some emergency funds, uh, the political power of other groups, homeowners, uh, landlords, small businesses, tends to cannibalize those funds, and renters often end up last. So the Biden administration probably needs to prioritize rent relief. Um, it could get behind a bill that has actually been introduced in Congress, the Emergency Rental Assistance and Rental Market Stabilization Act, which was introduced by Representatives uh, Maxine Waters, Denny Heck, and Sherrod Brown from the Senate. And this would provide $100 billion in emergency rental assistance, which gives you an idea of the scale of the, of the response that we probably need, which would include up to six months of back rent, uh, which would be targeted by income and need. Uh, some money could be used for housing relocation, stabilization. Some, months could, some money could be used for rent stabilization after that. I think it's a, a good rough uh, idea. Uh, I think what we're going to need is a, is a bargain with landlords and say, we will agree that some of this $100 billion will go to you. Maybe we'll pay the landlords directly. We'll give you six months rent, but you will have to forbear and forgive the rest. Uh, and I think the crucial thing to look for in the months ahead is whether or not uh, Biden and the leaders in Congress can pull that off. Um, if not, I think, you know, early January is going to be a terrible time here in the United States because the uh, moratorium will end, uh, some landlords will evict tenants, and as Lorna predicted, this could create a, a crisis economically. My final point is just to get back to a kind of micro-level analysis. Uh, we know that the burdens of, of this structural inequality uh, really play out in disproportionate ways. We have new data here in New Orleans, for instance, that shows, just to confirm what we knew, and, the, and, the, and to get back to the point that kind of brought Brahm, I think, to call this little forum together, the Black Lives Matter movement has become a, made us all much more aware of, of structural racism in the United States, um, but uh, the pandemic has just highlighted that even further. Uh, we now know uh, from, the, from, from previous months, right before the pandemic, uh, the renters who are t- typically evicted by court order in the United States, and particularly in New Orleans, are predominantly black, with black women disproportionately impacted. This is the point that Matthew Desmond made so powerfully in Evicted. Um, and in places like New Orleans, for example, where renters make up more than half, 53% of, of the population, uh, this is a, a really critical point. But the, evi- the, the COVID pandemic uh, incidents almost maps perfectly 
with the hotspots for eviction. Uh, just to give you a great micro-level analysis, the community in the New Orleans area called Little Woods, which probably had the highest uh, eviction rate in the city before uh, um, the pandemic, also has one of the various high, highest COVID-19 eviction uh, infection rates in the area as well. So you see this perfect correlation between vulnerability to the pandemic and vulnerability to eviction. Uh, solutions, I don't have a perfect solution, but I think we need to figure out a way to force a compromise between the landlord community and the tenant community and have a, a permanent you know, cancellation of rent, uh, at least um, in exchange for receiving some of these emergency funds. Um, and, but I think we also need to work on other things that are long-term solutions, like a right to counsel in eviction proceedings. Some cities in the, new, in the United States, New York City, San Francisco, Newark, Philadelphia, have recently enacted strong uh, right to counsel legislation. Uh, it's probably going to be very difficult to achieve that nationally, but it may uh, uh, point in a direction that we need to focus on. Uh, in the U.S., at least, municipalities may be the place where we can achieve some gains in protecting people by doing things like giving them, you know, meaningful due process rights in eviction. And, and the results show that once people have counsel, uh, lawyers are able to obtain much better results in eviction. They might not be able to completely cure an eviction, but they can give a tenant much greater time to find new housing and often reach a consent judgment. So those are my only points for today. Thank you very much. Mark, any more thoughts? Yeah, I'll just add, I just add uh, one, one more kind of general thought because we didn't talk much about homelessness. But I think that uh, one point to kind of keep in the front lens is a point that Sarah Rankin makes about the role that public health um, has been used as a justification for um, – for dealing with homelessness from a policing uh, perspective in the U.S. Um, and so uh, by and large in the U.S., you know, there is, there is a traditional uh, policing model for how homelessness and control of public space and private space uh, has been used in public health and public health and so-called public health emergencies have been um, largely the, the justification for how the state chooses to interact. And, and I think one of the things that we have seen in the relationship to how cities have dealt with it, uh, have dealt with homeless um, uh, communities has been largely to um, try to marshal resources to pull people into some form of shelter, uh, usually private hotel space. Uh, uh, that's, that's what happened in Louisiana. Um, in fact, back in, um, in March, um, I'd had, uh, someone that called me and, um, was concerned because they were talking about, uh, busting up homeless people in New Orleans and busting them to all the local state parks or all the state parks around the, the, uh, the state in order to put them in shelters because they're these cabins that, exist in you know various state parks around the around the state so using those those state state facilities um and then that that sort of fell off the table you know it just kind of disappeared 
at a certain point. And, um, you know, you know, my, my skepticism is that the state was worried about whether they could evict them, um, at the end of the day, whereas, you know, with, with a private, a private actor, there seem to be better resources or at least the law is more willing to separate itself in the con the public is more willing to separate itself in the, in the process of that eviction. Um, so, so that, that, that would be my last sort of con content is that I think this also bleeds into the homeless sector, but not necessarily in obvious and clear ways. Uh, but the eviction process still impacts them very much. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, John. Thanks, Lorna. Um, thanks all to all three of you. This is, oh, I think you're putting your, your finger on some very painful in all of your contributions, putting your your you know your finger on some very painful spots. Um, exactly what 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 at least when we designed the workshop, you know, are looking for. These are not necessarily comfortable conversations to have, but I think they are necessary conversations to have. Having said that, um, I'm hoping we can have a, a bit of a discussion. So, who can I get, Michael? Michael Milo. Thank you so much for these wonderful contributions. I was wondering, we were pr provided with a, a nice view from England and from the United States on all kinds of measures during these COVID times. Um, it's statutory law, I would say, on various levels. My question uh, is this. We have seen in the Netherlands the use of bona fides, reasonableness and fairness in order to... Um, have not immediately uh, eviction taking place in order to have not immediately allowing claims of rents behind to be demanded. Now, in what extent would this be present in the United States or in England? This kind of general open norm, perhaps of bona fides, which would uh, be of a kind of help by judges, but which would also be of a kind of help uh, because it makes the individual person realize as a creditor that uh, that person should not immediately demand the individual property right to be effectuated. It is a question to, to Mark, to John, but also to um, Lorna. I could jump in uh, very quickly. I, I don't think it would be a, a successful argument in the United States. Okay. Uh, it should be, maybe, but I cannot see judges saying that landlords are constrained by a duty of ongoing good faith to forbear. You'll need statutory intervention to make that work. Okay. Uh, so I'll give you one... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Lorna. I, no, so, so, no, so I'll finish off the U.S. first. So I'll, I'll give you one example where where that kind of argument was successful, but it was only successful in a very limited way. So I live in a community, I live in Savannah, Georgia, and we had a renowned, uh, what we call a slumlord, uh, that operated just really um, disgusting properties that were uninhabitable. And the judge in that in um, uh, in that case in a, in a particular eviction case took what is really an extraordinary step. She essentially put all of his properties in the context of a single eviction uh, in receivership. Um, 
So she basically said, you know, you, you know, um, the, the, the tenant had raised the defense that the properties were uninhabitable. And it was basically this good faith argument. Like he's not acting in good faith as a landlord. Um, it was, it was one of those that was just such a tipping point moment. Like I guess it had gotten so bad that even the judge had to say, yes, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're not only going to extend the relief to you, we're going to extend the relief to all of his other properties. Um, and it essentially held them in receivership where the court took in rent for all of these various properties um, and, and redeployed that rent to fix the properties and bring them up to habitable standards uh, before he could resume collecting rent. But I think I agree with John in the sense that like that's that, I mean, the fact that we call that an extreme remedy, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, yep. he gets a better property. He's still collecting rent, you know, and then um, probably, you know, a year from that time, he's going to find a reason to evict those tenants and raise the rent on the property that's now been enhanced. So two things I'd add to that. Um, one is that um, there is a distinction in England between the way in which rental evictions and mortgage evictions have been treated. So while uh, the government legislated for rental evictions in the Coronavirus Act 2020, mortgages have been dealt with by the regulator. And what that means actually is that um, while the legislation sets out requirements, um, what the regulator is setting out is norms of behaviour. So what the regulator has said is that they expect that uh, creditors won't uh, pursue uh, foreclosures and evictions, um, but it's not a ban in the same way. And there's, there's probably an interesting bit of thinking to do about that distinction um, it might be something to do with the hierarchy of rights um, and the acceptable nature of, of interfering with landlords versus um, mortgagees or it might be because that's the infrastructure we have um, and uh, when you're trying to do things quickly uh, you use the infrastructure that's available to you um, but it's the it's through the financial conduct authority that um, the the um, encouragement to forbear uh, was articulated to uh, regulated mortgage lenders. Um, and that is, in effect, um, asking them as, as uh, that, that's sort of, those are the norms that the Financial Conduct Authority operates with in terms of um, treating customers fairly. Um, so so the, the regulatory approach is a little bit more in that frame um, compared to the legislative approach. And um, the other thing I will add is that um, in cases uh, where landlords are going to court, um, to evict uh, since June, there's been a requirement that they submit evidence. Uh, almost no, almost no cases have come through, um, but for for those which in gaps between lockdowns could be brought, there's a requirement that the landlord submit evidence about how the tenant circumstances have been affected by COVID. Um, so I think that's again sort of opening up um, a norm about treat, treating people fairly by requiring that the court. Uh, be told, and courts have been given a power to, sus- to suspend proceedings until such evidence is provided um, by the landlord. I just wanted to follow up. I think Lorna made a great point about the difference between mortgage obligations and rental obligations. Because in the U.S., the same thing happened. You know, the mortgage services were also encouraged to forbear. And maybe it's because the structure existed because there's greater federal regulation over mortgages, or also because, because the long-term duration of the property relationship is more uh, creates more potential elasticity because you could push the uh, 
deferred uh, payments to the end of the mortgage term, that seemed to have worked. But it, it, so I, I would modify my answer now in light of what Lauren has said. Uh, Mark? Well, and I'll, I'll add to that, to that point, which is, and I also think that lenders in the U.S., were more receptive after the fallout of the 2008 mortgage crisis because, you know, the the impacts of foreclosure were just devastating on them as much as it was devastating on everyone else. So they they were far more willing. I, I want to tag on to one other point that John made at the end, which was the, you know, kind of this idea of, you know, where is that good faith, the bona fides, why? And in the U.S., it's oftentimes in the pre- presentation of the legal arguments. And so the the role of counsel and representation in these proceedings, you know, in a lot of the proceedings that I've looked at, you know, here in Savannah, so looking at how eviction proceedings have, well, I don't think Savannah is an outlier in the U S by any means. I think it's, it's basically the same all over. Um, landlords generally are very sloppy um, in the way they file eviction proceedings. And they oftentimes, um, and, and so I'm, I, I've seen I've seen the data, and I definitely appreciate like places like New York that have implemented this right to counsel um, approach to to dealing with landlord tenant. I, I appreciate that that they've had some effects. I'm a little skeptical as to whether it's going to have long term effects. You know, I I sort of wonder if landlords will catch up. You know, landlords will say, okay, we we've, we've got to tighten our game up because you know we can't just simply present you know put anything on paper and somehow have an advantage that's going to uh, preserve our, our interest in our right. Thanks everyone. Um, I, I was just thinking just to link this back to Piketty's second book, the last book on capital and ideology again. Um, I think there's an argument that he makes that fits here very well, how our legal systems have been structured to protect the owners and not so much the others, because the owners have traditionally had the voting rights. I think this is a very interesting, um, could be a very interesting addition to this. Anyway, Jill. And sorry, go ahead, John. No. Oh, I also makes, I wonder if we as legal educators need to be pushing harder for alternatives, alternative degrees in legal education, because it seems like lots of people yeah. uh, could be employed who don't need a full law degree and bar passage in the U.S., but who could be incredibly valuable advocates if they were permitted to represent tenants in eviction proceedings. I don't know if that's happening in the U.K. There's been discussion about it here, but it, we haven't made any real progress. Jill. Uh, thank, thank you for, for all these uh, fascinating uh, contributions. I, I wanted to just raise, to continue the comparison of the, the mortgage uh, and rental eviction processes, we have pre-action requirements for mortgage evictions, like you need to provide information about um, the rights of the more like the the owner, um, and also like there's reasonable efforts to arrange repayment. And we've actually just introduced that for uh, tenancy evictions as well. So in this transitional period, I mean, I don't know if it will actually be made um, permanent, but you need, so when a a private uh, landlord um, wants to evict now, they have to give tenant clear information about their 
amount of arrears and their rights in relation to proceedings and eviction. And then they have to make reasonable efforts to with the tenant to to have a reasonable plan for repayment of rent. So it's like a like a similar procedure. Um, and they have to take into consideration, for example, that the um, any steps that the tenant um, uh, is taking that might affect their ability to repay the rent. So I think that that's kind of like you're all calling on us to do this kind of um, providing tenants with protection and also having a built-in negotiation beforehand. It's kind of interesting to see that built into the eviction proceedings is like a step before you're even allowed to take, you know, um, uh, uh, go to court. Um, another, but a question I had for Laura that I had for Lorna was, and um, Mark kind of raised this issue as well. I, f- I felt like you were almost like optimistic of the self self correcting way that the economy would think. Oh, this is irrational now that we can we continue with evictions because it will disrupt the whole system and although you cautioned me against making comparisons with other crises I want it made me think about the financial crisis and you know the 2008-2009 where it just ran away um and I wonder if this would just run away again even though it's not rational um almost like that I can't remember the report that came out, but when there was like an economic report of climate change where they said it's more economical to actually take action now instead of denying it. And yet (laughs) we're still in the same situation where they're, we're, we're just like almost, well, we're not all, we're not continuing on regardless now, but it's not like there's this mass change with the attempt of saving money so I was like, I, I, I wanted to believe you, <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder if there's still a threat that, um, that the run, the runaway risks will just keep running despite the irrationality of it. Thanks, Jill. That's a great question. Um, so, so let me distinguish between three different categories. Um, so, so I don't have faith in self-correcting markets. Um, so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't accusing you, sorry. (laughs) I I didn't have that in mind. Um, what I had in mind was, was two other, um, ways of looking at this. One is not markets, but individuals. And the other is the state. And, uh, the point about individuals, um, now, uh, Chris Odenay came to Essex to present his brilliant book, um, last year, whenever we got to go places and talk about things. Um, And one of the questions I asked him was uh, in the places he was looking at in the US where you've got, you know, kind of whole streets or whole neighborhoods or whole cities that are um, seeing massive waves of eviction. Um, Now, you would think in those circumstances that uh, creditors would recognize that um, by foreclosing all those properties and leaving them empty, you're creating voids and and you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot uh, because not only are you not getting a renegotiated lower level of income from it, but you're also d- stripping out the capital value because the value of that stock is driven down by the scale of, of the um, the kind of vacancies. Um, and we kind of scratched our heads and said, yeah, you would think that banks would think about that, but no, they don't and no, they didn't. Um, so so I, think, I think on the individual frame, 
Um, yes, the lesson of experience is that um, that's that's not always how it works. Um, I think my question is whether the scale of this situation and the depth and, and length of the economic crisis that we're likely to be in might be a tipping point in uh, individuals um, thinking about how they can shore up their own losses. Um, but the other point, which is maybe the bigger point, um, in, in the book that Mark and I do, we, we talk about how states allocate resilience um, either to individuals, to shore up individuals and communities, but also how states allocate resilience in ways that shores up the state and specifically shores up the government of the day. And I think we are seeing unprecedented pressures on states and governments um, because their political legitimacy is turning on their ability to manage this crisis and to um, mitigate the economic crash that, that will follow. And, you know, fascinating in the UK to see um, the Conservative Party, um, it's kind of more Labour Party territory to, to, to make a lot of the policy choices that they're making right now. And it's provoking some really interesting questions um, about their positioning uh, on the spectrum and um, its emergency measures. Um, but what we're seeing is um, political legitimacy turning on the choices that they're making. And, and I think there's no doubt that that's about reading the public mood and the public mood right now. And, and it's, you know, one can't predict in three or four years' time if the public mood will have bounced back uh, to where it was before. I think that depends on how long this goes on for um, and how deep the economic impact of it is. But I think what what I was primarily thinking about in in just in just thinking about how the context um, may mean that states, um, in order to shore up the government's own resilience, um, will need to to sort of recognise that the context will continue to be extraordinary and exceptional for quite some time to come. And you know, in Rashmi and, and Nestor's piece on property in crisis. They kind of talk about, you know, when the pendulum swings during the crisis, does it swing back afterwards to where it was before or, or does it move back to, to a position that is altered? And I think that the, the longer and the deeper the crisis, uh, the more likely it is that you won't swing back to where you were before um, because it's, it's just uh, you, it's changing the conversation um, that the nation's having and, and therefore having a, a future impact on on sort of party political positions on property and, and future electoral politics. So, so so that was what I meant in terms of thinking about the correction. I was thinking less about the markets, uh, but more actually about how states and, and political leadership um, is adjusting. Thank you. Thanks so much. And I think I, so I, I'll add to that. I think, you know, just sort of picking up another theme that we pull out in the book is that, I mean, this is a perfect example of the wicked problems issue that scale presents, you know, because the way that we legally approach these problems, we, we drop it into some bucket that we say, okay, well, this, this is the area of law that we should deal with. But as we divide out the scale for how, how it's resolved and the U S is a great example of this, you know, is this a, is this a private landlord problem or a, or a public problem? If it's a public problem, is it a state problem or a federal problem um, or a local problem? Um, Is it a resource problem that the state can just throw money at, or is it, a retrenchment problem that we need to pull back some remedies of private, private landlords. And we have no agreement across the board, particularly in the U S when we look across the landscape as to how exactly we should approach that problem, which means it opens up that space 
for recasting the narrative to be something else. You know, is COVID about is COVID primarily about the financial loss of the economy because people can't get to work, or is it primarily about maintaining a public health order so that we can get back to work? And so, you know, I think I think that 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 ability to reframe or or, or the longer that we have and the more dimensional it is, the more likely it is that the problem is subject to multiple different frames and multiple different perspectives that make it all the more complicated to create any sort of co- cohesion about how we look at this. Mark, um, I just, I, I think this has been very interesting. I, um, it's useful to think about it in terms of the third major crisis, at least in the U S that's affected us in the last 15 years. Katrina created a national conversation about radical change, the recession and the mortgage meltdown, the second, and this is the third. And the, the first two, though, in the end, you know, despite so much writing and so much theorizing about how property law systems need to change, the changes were really quite modest in the end. There was some reform in mortgage markets, but not a, a, not a big, big change. Maybe lending became more conservative and a little bit more careful, greater protections, a little greater banking regulation. But abuses continued, you know, and, and, and Katrina didn't restructure uh, things that much. So I, I would love for Laura's predictions to be true, uh, Laura's predictions to be true, but I'm not confident it will happen. And I, the fact that the stock market as it is at an all-time high tells me that, you know, once these vaccines come out, everything is going to go back to normal. And I'm afraid we're not going to get any systemic change, um, at least here in the U.S. I think maybe the U.K. is different, but, but I, I don't see it on the horizon here. Thanks, John. Dear everyone, it's always good to go out wanting more rather than finalizing everything. But we are now, it's now 5.15 here. As our American colleagues can see, because it's getting dark, it is already dark here. I wonder if there's anyone with a small question left, but otherwise I think we it, it might just be time to, to end things. Huh? All right. Um, yeah, I'm just taking what Laura wrote in the chat. I, I agree very much. Huh? We should take Bonnie's question earlier and, and think individually what we can do. Uh, I very much agree. Um, you know, even though if the system might revert back, um, it doesn't mean we have to. I've, I have, dear colleagues, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It has exceeded everything that we 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 planned in 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 planning the workshop and shows once more, I think, that when we get together, you know, we and 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 start debating these things, um, we collectively end up further and and do more than what we could individually do. And that, for me, is always the, at least that's the intention with which we have these workshops. That leaves me to thank you all once more. And thank you for those, thanks for, thanks for attending, thanks for staying with us, you know, until, until the very end. Thanks especially to Lorna and Mark and John uh, for this truly excellent um, um, final bit. Um, and thanks once more to Chef. Uh, we salute you, Chef. Uh, f- like I said at the beginning, you know, it's, it, this is, it's only the beginning of, of, of going away but not finally so we hope to see you we all hope i i think i can voice this on behalf of all of us uh, we all hope to see you soon and perhaps next year at juice Comune. thanks for joining all the others um you know have a wonderful evening thanks so much see you all soon
Thanks, everyone. Um, I, I was just thinking, just to link this back to Piketty's second book, the last book on capital and ideology again, um, I think there's an argument that he makes that fits here very well, how our legal systems have been structured to protect the owners and not so much the others, because the owners have traditionally had the voting rights. I think this is a very interesting, um, could be a very interesting addition to this. Anyway, Jill, sorry, go ahead, John. No, I also makes. I wonder if we, as legal educators, need to be pushing harder for alternatives, alternative degrees in legal education, because it seems like lots of people yeah. uh, could be employed who don't need a full law degree and bar passage in the U.S., but who could be incredibly valuable advocates if they were permitted to represent tenants in eviction proceedings. I don't know if that's happening in the U.K. There's been discussion about it here, but it, we haven't made any real progress. That's all. Yeah, sorry, I was writing this down. I think it's a great idea. Uh, Jill. Uh, thank, thank you for, for all these uh, fascinating uh, contributions. I, I wanted to just raise, to continue the comparison of the, the mortgage uh, and rental eviction processes, we have pre-action requirements for mortgage evictions, like you need to provide information about um, the rights of the more like the the owner, um, and also like there's reasonable efforts to arrange repayment. And we've actually just introduced that for uh, tenancy evictions as well. So in this transitional period, I mean, I don't know if it will actually be made um, permanent, but you need, so when a, a private uh, landlord um, wants to evict now, they have to give tenant clear information about their amount of arrears and their rights in relation to proceedings and eviction. And then they have to make reasonable efforts to with the tenant to to have a reasonable plan for repayment of rent so it's like a like a similar procedure um and they have to take into consideration for example that that um any steps that the tenant um uh, is taking that might affect their ability to repay the rent so i think that that's kind of like you're all calling on us to do this kind of um, providing tenants with protection and also having a built-in negotiation beforehand is kind of interesting to see that built into the eviction proceedings. It's like a step before you're even allowed to take, you know, um, uh, uh, go to court. Um, another, but a question I had for Laura that I had for Lorna was, and um, Mark kind of raised this issue as well. I've, I felt like you were almost like optimistic of the self self-correcting way that the economy would think oh this is irrational now that we can we continue with evictions because it will disrupt the whole system and although you cautioned me against making comparisons with other crises i want it made me think about the financial crisis and you know the 2008 2009 where it just ran away um and I wonder if this would just run away again, even though it's not rational. Um, almost like that, I can't remember the report that came out, but when there was like an economic report of climate change where they said 
it's more economical to actually take action now instead of denying it. And yet <laughs> we're still in the same situation where they're, we're, we're just like almost, well, we're not all, we're not continuing on regardless now, but it's not like there's this mass change with the attempt of saving money. So I was like, I, I, I wanted to believe you, <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder if there's still a threat that, um, that the run, the runaway risks will just keep running despite the irrationality of it. Thanks, Jill. That's a great question. Um, so, so let me distinguish between three different categories. Um, so, so I don't have faith in self-correcting markets. Um, so I wasn't. Uh, having, I wasn't accusing you. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have that in mind. Um, what I had in mind was was two other um, ways of looking at this. One is not markets, but individuals, and the other is the state. And uh, the point about individuals, um, now uh, Chris Oden and I came to Essex to present his brilliant book um, last year whenever we got to go places and talk about things. Um, and one of the questions I asked him was uh, in the places he was looking at in the US where you've got you know, kind of whole streets or whole neighbourhoods or whole cities that are um, seeing massive waves of eviction. Um, now, you would think in those circumstances that uh, creditors would recognise that um, by foreclosing all those properties and leaving them empty, you're creating voids and, and you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot uh, because not only are you not getting a renegotiated lower level of income from it, but you're also stripping out the capital value because the value of that stock is driven down by the scale of, of the, um, the kind of vacancies. Um, and we kind of scratched our heads and said, yeah, you would think that banks would think about that, but no, they don't, and no, they didn't. Um, so so I, think, I think on the individual frame, um, yes, the lesson of experience is that um, that's, that's not always how it works. Um, I think my question is whether the scale of this situation and the depth and, and length of the economic crisis that we're likely to be in might be a tipping point in uh, individuals um, thinking about how they can shore up their own losses. Um, but the other point, which is maybe the bigger point, um, in, in the book that Mark and I do, we, we talk about how states allocate resilience um, either to individuals, to shore up individuals and communities, but also how states allocate resilience in ways that shores up the state and specifically shores up the government of the day. And I think we are seeing unprecedented pressures on states and governments um, because their political legitimacy is turning on their ability to manage this crisis and to um, mitigate the economic crash that, that will follow. And, you know, fascinating in the UK to see um, the Conservative Party, um, it's kind of more Labour Party territory to, to, to make a lot of the policy choices that they're making right now. And it's provoking some really interesting questions um, about their positioning uh, on the spectrum and um, it's emergency measures um, but what we're seeing is um, political legitimacy turning on the choices that they're making and and I think there's no doubt that that's about reading the public mood and the public mood right now and and it's you know one can't predict in three or four years time if the public mood will have bounced back uh, to where it was before I think that depends on how long this goes on for um, and how deep 
the economic impact of it is. But I think what what I was primarily thinking about in in just in just thinking about how the context um, may mean that states, um, in order to shore up the government's own resilience, um, will need to to sort of recognise that the context will continue to be extraordinary and exceptional for quite some time to come. And you know, in Rashmi and, and Nestor's piece on property in crisis. They kind of talk about, you know, when the pendulum swings during the crisis, does it swing back afterwards to where it was before or or does it move back to, to a position that is altered? And I think that the the longer and the deeper the crisis, uh, the more likely it is that you won't swing back to where you were before um, because it's it's just uh, you it's changing the conversation um, that the nation's having and, and therefore having a, a future impact on on sort of party political positions on property and, and future electoral politics. So, so so that was what I meant in terms of thinking about the correction. I was thinking less about the markets, uh, but more actually about how states and, and political leadership um, is adjusting. Thank you. Thanks so much. And I think I, so I, I'll add to that. I think, you know, just sort of picking up another theme that we pull out in the book is that, I mean, this is a perfect example of the wicked problems issue that scale presents you know because the way that we legally approach these problems we we drop it into some bucket that we say okay well this this is the area of law that we should deal with but as we divide out the scale for how it how it's resolved and the u.s is a great example of this you know is this a is this a private landlord problem or a or a public problem if it's a public problem is it a state problem or a federal problem um or a local problem um is it a resource problem that the state can just throw money at or is it a retrenchment problem that we need to pull back some remedies of private, private landlords. And we have no agreement across the board, particularly in the U S when we look across the landscape as to how exactly we should approach that problem, which means it opens up that space for recasting the narrative to be something else. You know, is COVID about is COVID primarily about the financial loss of the economy because people can't get to work or is it primarily about, maintaining a public health order so that we can get back to work. And so, you know, I think, I think that that, that ability to reframe or, or, or the longer that we have and the more dimensional it is, the more likely it is that the problem is subject to multiple different frames and multiple different perspectives that make it all the more complicated to create any sort of co- cohesion about how we look at this. John, anything to, uh, Anything to add? Mark, um, I just, I, I think this has been very interesting. I, um, it's useful to think about it in terms of the third major crisis, at least in the U.S., that's affected us in the last 15 years. Katrina created a national conversation about radical change, the recession and the mortgage meltdown, the second, and this is the third. And the, the first two, though, in the end, you know, despite so much writing and so much theorizing about how property law systems need to change, the changes were really quite modest in the end. There was some reform in mortgage markets, but not a, a, not a big, big change. Baby lending became more conservative and a little bit more careful, greater protections, a little greater banking regulation. But abuses continued. You know, and, and, and Katrina didn't restructure uh, things that much. So I, 
I would love for Laura's predictions to be true. Uh, Laura's predictions to be true, but I'm not confident it will happen. And the fact that the stock market is at an all-time high tells me that, you know, once these vaccines come out, everything is going to go back to normal, and I'm afraid we're not going to get any systemic change, Um, at least here in the U.S. I think maybe the U.K. is different, but but I, I don't see it on the horizon here. Thanks, John. Um, dear everyone, I, I, it's always good to go out wanting more rather than, uh, 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 you know, uh, finalizing everything. But we are now; it's now five fifteen here, uh, as our American colleagues can see, because it's getting dark. It is already <laughs> dark here. Um, I, I, I wonder if there's anyone with a small question left. But otherwise, I think we it it might just be time to, to end things. Huh? All right. Um, yeah, I'm just taking what Laura wrote in the chat. I, I agree very much. Huh? We should take Bonnie's question earlier and th- and think individually what we can do. Uh, I very much agree. Um, you know, even though if the system might revert back, um, it doesn't mean we have to. Uh, and I've I have, dear colleagues, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It has exceeded everything that we 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 planned in 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 in, in planning the workshop and shows once more. I think. That when we get together, you know, we and 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 start debating these things, um, we collectively end up further and and do more than what we could individually do. And that, for me, is always the at least that's the intention with which we have these workshops. Um, that leaves me to thank you all once more, and thank you for those. Thanks for thanks for attending. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, you know, until until the very end. Thanks especially to Lorna and Mark and John. Uh, for this truly excellent um, um, final bit. Um, and thanks once more to Chef. Uh, we salute you, Chef. Uh, f- like I said at the beginning, you know, it's, it, this is, it's only the beginning of, of, of going away, but not finally. So we hope to see you. We all hope. I, I think I can voice this on behalf of all of us. Uh, we all hope to see you soon and perhaps next year at Juice Comune. Um, so, dear colleagues, normally we would um, we would now go downstairs somewhere and raise a glass or something, or have a drink, or I miss this terribly. Uh, uh, you know, Zoom drinks are nice, but they're not as much fun as the as the real thing. So, I'm hoping um, in due time we have the opportunity to raise that glass together, and when we do, I owe you all a drink. Uh, thanks very much for joining. Uh, I wish you a a wonderful Friday. Um, for Mark and for for John, have a have a have a wonderful day. Really have a you know have a wonderful day. Also with your families. Uh, thanks for joining all the others. Um, you know have a wonderful evening. Thanks so much. See you all soon. Bye. 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 Thanks, Bram, for sharing for us and oh, organizing. Thanks, it was great. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bram, it was superb. Yeah. Excellent job.